Consequence Podcast Network. My friendship to all of you precludes my involvement with any one of you. But if you want to make love, then I do too, and I'll be right there behind you. Greetings, constant listeners, and welcome yet again to the Losers Club, a Stephen King podcast. My name is Rockin' Randall Colburn, and today we are following up our book episode on Dolores Claiborne by discussing the 1995 film adaptation starring Kathy Bates, who you may also remember from a little movie called The Tommyknockers. I'm just kidding. Misery. (laughs) It would be cool if she played Jimmy Smits's role in The Tommyknockers, though. She'd probably kill it. (laughs) Uh, I think she should play. She should have played a Tommy Knocker. That would, that would be really cool. <laughs> the Tommy Knocker. Uh, who is who is that joining me from Texas? Oh man, I didn't have time to think of a name. Um, this this is Dan David Strathern Caffrey. <laughs> <laughs> Nate, I'll, I'll just go ahead and pick like the most disgusting character from great the, actor. Uh, I, he's he's an amazing actor. I'm really excited to talk about him. And Dan, yeah. uh, was this your first time seeing the Dolores Claiborne film adaptation? No, I actually I'd seen it a few times in uh, college. My roommate Bill Hansen, who we talk about all the time, who's who's was at our uh, our festival at the Music Box. Um, he just went through this period where he was buying what I felt like was every Stephen King adaptation on DVD, and I realized this was one I hadn't seen. And and I think it's regarded as a pretty prestigious adaptation, but I just hadn't really heard much about it up until then. So I watched it in college and uh, really liked it quite a bit. And then I, I, I probably watched it maybe once or twice between then and now also. So this was a, um, this is like visiting an old friend. <laughs> uh, cool. And who is joining us from Nashville? This is Jennifer Jason Lee Adams. <laughs> <laughs> Ooh, Love nice. Yeah. Um, yeah. I I can't remember the first time I watched this movie, although I know that I've seen it. So it was probably pretty soon after it came out. Um, and I don't remember liking it very much. But I also don't think I had read the book mm-hmm. yet. And I don't remember the first time I read the book either. But I've read it like probably five or six times since then. Well, I'll be curious to hear about how you feel watching the movie after you've read the book and how that colors it. I think that'll be a fun, fun discussion point. <laughs> yeah, I've got a lot of thoughts about this cool, book cool. and movie. Yeah. Uh, and then who is joining uh, me in Chicago? Hey, guys. This is Dan, the string on my pet dime broke fleer. <laughs> <laughs> I love how she had these little <laughs> insults that she was hurling at everyone. She's like, I'll kick your butt so high it'll look like a hunchback. Um, <laughs> yep. Have you yeah, seen it, this movie before, Dan? So I've seen it in high school. I think I watched like a TBS or TNT uh, version of it because I don't remember any cursing or language or anything. Not that there's a ton in this movie. Um, so yeah, rewatching it though was, it was cool. Cause I was like, oh yeah, I re- kind of remember the scene, but you know, I was watching it through the impatient gaze of a young boy. Um, and now I'm a man. So it was cool yes. to watch it again. I, 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 <laughs> you know what I'm talking about. Um, no, I, I re- read this in college actually, but I've not read it since. And that was a long time ago. So hmm. I might have to revisit. Nice. Do you remember the first time you watched the movie? 
Yes. Uh, I was sort of in my uh, hardcore Stephen King phase in high school, and I was at that point where I had read all the books. I was too scared to watch a lot of the film adaptations because I didn't like gore. Not that there's gore in Dolores Claiborne, but I mostly just avoided Stephen King adaptations for for a while when I was young um, and just read the books because I could read gore, but I couldn't watch it. So uh, so I, I went through like kind of a, a phase in Hollywood video where I would just uh, scoop up every King. Ad- I had this like, I worked at Eddie Bauer when I was in high school and um, oh, wow. I would always work on Friday nights. So I didn't really have a life. I would get off work yeah. at 10 and I would just sort of, uh, well, like I think I would get off at like 9.30. And so I'd, I'd like drive home and I'd always just go rent something at Hollywood Video and go home and watch that. And I remember I went through different phases and one of my phases was just Stephen King movies. And I watched like every Stephen King movie over several weeks. And I remember one of them was Dolores Claiborne. And I think I fell asleep during it because like you, Dan Flieger, I was uh, viewing it through the lens of a young impatient boy. Now I am a, <laughs> now I am a patient man. And, oh. uh, and I had read the book before I saw the movie and I remember I liked it, but I was disappointed um, that let's just say the sort of climactic uh, scene at the well didn't get as dark as it does in the book in the in this yeah. film, which I think is actually an interesting choice and probably a smart one considering um, just the general uh, like what do you do when you adapt a book like this you know which I think mm-hmm. is it will be a big part of our conversation today. But yeah, let me let's uh, so we've done our introductions. I have a lot of history, not a lot, but I think like sort of a handful of history and and I think the reviews are really interesting in telling about this book and we're gonna pour over them in a, in a place we call the Dairy Public Library. Quite well, if you see excuse me sir do you have Prince Albert in a can? You do? Well, you better let the poor guy out. Yeah, my Madeline. Did I have to go? Did I have to get cleaned up? Tell him. Tell him. Tell him I'll see him tonight. Get out. Last chance, don't you? Get out. Get out. Hello, welcome. Uh, Mike Hanlon is out today, and uh, Rockin' Randall <laughs> is here to be your librarian. And uh, so, yeah, let's talk a little bit about the history of this movie, which, um, which you know, is part of the Castle Rock Pictures lineage, uh, along with Stand By Me and The Shawshank Redemption. And this came out just a year after The Shawshank Redemption. So you can sort of smell the prestige on this one. Uh, mm-hmm. They were really trying to chase that Oscar buzz with this one. And um, But yeah, this came out on March 24th, 1995 in the U.S. Budget was $13 million and it reaped about $46.4 million, so not too bad. Nice. Yeah, and uh, I believe it was number three the week it opened um, and went on to make, uh, you know, it did pretty well domestically. It ranks, it's not, you know, it's this isn't the kind of movie that's going to drive people in droves to the theater, <laughs> I think. So uh, it ranks as the 15th highest grossing film based on a Stephen King novel. Um, but if you adjust it for inflation, it ranks as the 17th highest. So, uh, you know, not the highest, but definitely, I think, you know, more beloved than maybe some of the ones that surpassed it. Um so yeah, Dolores Claiborne, we obviously talked about the book episode, uh, where we talked about the book in the, in the, in the episode, and I, I guess I'll just do a quick little synopsis for everybody. This, this movie is a pretty faithful adaptation uh, in terms of story, not so much in structure, which is sort of something we'll discuss, but yeah, this is, uh, it follows Kathy Bates playing a woman named Dolores Claiborne, um, and we see her at different stages of her life, living in a really small town in Maine. I don't think they, Claire, I don't think they say in the movie movie that it's little tall you island see it, like on the, at, the, on the at the end um you see it on what like a 
like a piece of paper on the ferry, yeah, on the ferry right? there's like a piece yeah. of merchandise that says little tall island enchant getting like enchanted little tall island or something like that but yeah I don't right think they ever and that's it, a huge yeah because yeah, that's a huge part of the book is the isolation of the island the idea that it's mm. like really small population and it's more or less cut off from the state of maine it's it's you know and there's the reach that separates uh the mainland from the island um basically it's a woman who works for a housekeeper for a rich uh rich out-of-towner who ends up becoming a townie named vera donovan and um dolores yeah. works for her for several years <laughs> yeah we'll talk about her <laughs> and uh but then we also get a glimpse into her home life she's married to an abusive uh piece of shit and <laughs> has a daughter who basically you know kind of loves her dad until um you know dark things start happening because he is a very bad man and basically it is about the sacrifices um this woman has made in her life to protect those she loves and that is involved killing people that she once loved uh but also um i think her relationship with vera is sort of this weird uh you know thing in the middle it's someone she hates but also someone who she loves and someone who has been good to her but also bad to her and you know the movie begins just like the story does which dolores is suspected of murdering vera who has fallen down the stairs and dolores was found standing over her holding a marble rolling pin and the everybody sort of assumes that she uh killed her especially because they all assume that she is responsible for her husband's murder 30 years previous so we spend or maybe it was 20 years and so um because i believe she's 55 like when she's older i think they say it was 18 at one point yeah 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 and so um yeah so i think you're right and so you know basically the same investigator that investigated the death of her husband and was never able to prove she did it um his name is Mackie. he's a smaller part in the book but here he's sort of a major character played by christopher Plummer, and he is again investigating her for this murder of vera but um you know dolores basically says I did not kill Vera, but I did kill my husband, and I'll tell you all about that. So, and then in a very different sort of uh, turn of events for from the book, um, a lot of this story concerns Jennifer Jason Lee's uh, Selena, who is her daughter, coming back to the island to sort of be by her mother's side throughout this whole ordeal. And um, yeah, I think that's a solid uh, uh, synopsis. This was filmed in Lunenburg. Nova Scotia, which is kind of neat. Um, I thought it was actually filmed in Maine, but they went a little bit further north for it, probably because it was cheaper and the tax was probably better. But um, the uh, set did burn down though, and costing them a million dollars of damage. So oh my god, really? Oh, that no. I guess some good some good trivia there. Big, uh, big fire. Yeah. So yeah, and um, this was. Uh, I, the reviews were mostly positive for this one, um, but there were a few negative ones that I'm very interested in sort of how those reviews are framed. But um, but yeah, I'll read a few of them here, or at least some of the, uh, you know, some of the highlights of them. So the New York Times um, actually quite liked it. They said it was direct, directed efficiently by Taylor Hackford, who you may also remember as the director of Ray, who, which I believe he was up for an Oscar for Best Director. And, um, and then... Uh, Taylor Hackford also directed, uh, I'd say, a favorite amongst at least some people on the pod, The Devil's Advocate, uh, starring Al Pacino and Keanu Reeves, which is one of the looniest movies I think I've ever seen, which is very... It's amazing. He's a Gainesville lawyer, and I went to college in Gainesville, so has a special spot. Nice. Did, you meet, did you meet Al I feel like we can... in Gainesville? Did you meet the, the devil? devil? <laughs> yeah, I, we were talking at a urinal. <laughs> oh, yeah. 
<laughs> I love that movie. It is so wild. I but agree. yeah, uh, definitely a, a more muted uh, effort from him here. And so uh, New York Times says, uh, directed efficiently by him, they call it a vivid film. Um, and they say if the role's strength, uh, they're talking about uh, Kathy Bates's powerhouse of a performance. They say, if the role's strength is that Dolores actually has her feet firmly on the ground, that is its weakness too. A lack of shock value a la King. Only after the film has carefully laid the groundwork for a story of old wounds and violent mishaps does the anticlimactic truth become apparent. In terms of solving a mystery, there's no rabbit to pull out of this hat. Um, so... And then they go on to praise uh, Kathy Bates's performance. Uh, they say she does a walloping good job, the perfect no-nonsense actress to bring this woman to life, and her deadpan timing makes the most of Dolores's many wisecracks. There's a big range of emotions with Dolores, from fear, resentment, and then fury towards her ne'er-do-well husband to sardonic indignation over the way the world treats her. Mrs. Bates or Ms. Bates finds them all. So uh, Kathy Bates obviously was coming off her Oscar win for Misery just a few years previous. So her relationship with Stephen King was uh, was you know very well trodden by this point and very, playing a very different character here although somebody who you know uses colorful language in the same way as I'd say Annie Wilkes <laughs> in Misery but yeah it's uh, it's interesting and I, I do want to talk about in our heroes and villains section sort of the way uh, uh, maybe Kathy Bates's performance in Misery maybe impacts her performance here or at least how it colors it um Entertainment Weekly gave uh, this bit of a pan review, not fans at all. Owen Gleiberman mm. said uh, he calls it this solemnly ludicrous, and then in quotes, psychological thriller is like one of Hollywood's old hag gothics turned into a therapeutic grousathon. It's hush, hush, sweet Charlotte for the age of Oprah. And then he goes on to call Kathy Bates pudgy. Ooh. And um, oh, God. I know. And then uh, he says, let me see here. Yeah, the guy wrote this? Yeah. <laughs> I know. The movie might have been entertaining camp had director Taylor Hackford staged it with pace, style, or a whisper of surprise. Instead, the plot just clunks forward for two hours and ten minutes. We have uh, more than enough time to notice all the whiny bad acting. Jeez. D plus. D plus? Whiny. Yeah, it's, shot at Oprah. it's intense. And then um, Roger Ebert, however, was a fan. He said, given the level of melodrama in this story, it's surprising how much it turns into a two-character drama. Bates and Lee are well-matched here as mother and daughter with a long history of deep hurts and suspicions. There is no false sentimentality and, more important, no false theatrics in their relationship. They are bitter, taciturn main people with a lot of shared hurt. So complete is their chemistry that a subplot involving Selena's New York job and editor is an unnecessary distraction. Uh, minor slam towards Eric Bogosian there. We'll talk about him more later. <laughs> I was surprised wow. how affecting the movie was, mostly because Bates and Lee formed such a well-matched and convincing pair. And then he added, it, it's it's always funny when, like, you know, he was clearly like, well, how do I end this? And this is how he ended it. Does the movie creep up on you? Oh, my gravy. <laughs> oh, no. So those like are, it lost its pet dime. I thought the uh, description of efficiently directed was pretty insulting, and that's like the <laughs> best compliment. Like it's like a piece of machinery you describe as being efficient. Um, yeah, I think. But I, I wonder think that's if interesting. Oh, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to read one more review. Oh, yeah, uh, This sure. is from the Washington Post, and this is the one that I think it speaks to something. Dan uh, Caffrey, you were on the. You were on the book episode with me, and I think that this review sort of harkens to a couple of the odd reviews we read of the book, where uh, there was sort of this concern that there was an anti-male agenda yeah. at work in this. 
And um, this <sighs> this Washington Post review kind of touches on that a little bit that I thought was really interesting. First, he describes Selena. He frames her as around. He frames the character around her likability, which I think is a little bit weird um, in mm-hmm. a movie that's dealing with uh, trauma and abuse. And so he says there's almost nothing to like about Selena. She's humorless, bitter, and at least where her mother is concerned, wholly unforgiving. And yet. Her pain and resentment are so potent that they can't be ignored. So I just think that it's a little bit weird. Like he's praising her, but then also basically saying, "Hey, she could have smiled a little bit more, right?" So uh, yeah, well, it's, which is a little bit obnoxious. It's that thing, and this certainly still exists today, albeit um, not quite that potently. I think, as you saw in that review, yeah, it's that whole thing of, you know, we don't we don't bat an eye when a man gets to play a role where they're a murderer or have done something bad, right? But. Um, God forbid a woman does it and isn't funny and and smiling and sweet, right? Uh, yeah, and I think that's yeah. right. Right. Or yeah, hot. yeah, yeah. Which, yeah. And it's the pudgy thing is interesting from the Owen Gleiberman view too. And, and you know, different times, mm-hmm. of course. But yeah, that's a. Uh, I'm. It just feels like a strange movie to give like a D plus anyway. You know, I don't know. Just if I I get not loving it, but that he just feels like he's turning up the heat a little too much. If you ask me. <laughs> Yeah, and then I've got one last bit from the post-review, and this I think is interesting because it kind of comes out of nowhere in the review, which makes me feel like the editor toned it down. Um, Mm. So he basically says, Together, the reality that these two brilliant actresses bring to their characters shatters the programmatic male-bashing social agenda that Hackford and screenwriter Tony Gilroy have set up. There's a lot to overlook here, but they make the picture worth the effort. So he's basically saying these two women are so good that they help you overlook the fact that this thing is... uh, has a male bashing social agenda, which was wow. a, a very similar sentiment that we read in, I think, two different reviews for the book, that there was mm-hmm. male reviewers who were basically saying, uh, this book seems to have it out for men. Like King is, it's. I think it's like today when, you know, you get a lot of uh, uh, bad faith actors basically, you know, um, uh, going at people for basically like apologizing for being white or something. And they're like, oh, this movie has an anti-white agenda or something, mm-hmm. you know, which is always really obnoxious. Like, I'm not saying this, obviously that's a very different case, but there is this sort of like overreaching, like uh, somebody's trying a little bit too hard to show, you know, how annoyed they were that they're like, I'm a good guy. Why is this movie trying to bash men? You know? Yeah. And it's like that fragility. Yeah. It's, it's like just, it's like, but the thing is that's the first time that they mentioned this male social agenda and it's in the closing paragraph which and I was reading through the rest I read through the review like three times because I'm just like he doesn't mention this anywhere else so it made me wonder if uh, if it had been in it more and the editor had maybe toned it down and said like alright buddy you know you can you can <laughs> calm down now but, but I mean all, all the you guys are, once. they're all jerks to her except maybe John C. Riley's character but you know what I mean like they fail her in every way possible they abuse her they swindle her so it's mm-hmm. like let's be sympathetic you know, I, I like. Why is that the cross I'm going to die on? Like, oh, they bash men. It's like, well, look at who these characters were. Like, are you kidding me? You want to stand up for them? But, well, I'll say yeah. this: like, I'd say the movie actually gives you that character that the book doesn't in John C. Riley's character. Like, they give you the nice guy. <laughs> like, if you need yeah. that. <laughs> I don't think there's any character like that in the... I mean, no. Mr. Pease is not so bad in the book, I feel they, like. Yeah, they yeah. actually make him a little there's more villainous the, in the movie. Because they, they cast Bob Gunn, so... There's that one <laughs> yeah. um, uh, in the book. I mean, it's super brief. It's one that... It's when, who's the Scottish inspector who, like, interviews her? Oh, yeah. Then the, the, his, like, assistant is kind of nice to her, but it's just in, like, one... It's kind of just one mm. fleeting scene. Um, and just so I'm clear, the Scottish... Right. 
Christopher Plummer is not the same character as the Scottish Inspector, right? They didn't like use that name, or I think he is. is. He? I think no, I think oh, he is. Yeah, he yeah, is. They just didn't Scottish. give him. The I'm Scottish glad they accent. didn't he give him a Scottish brogue. Well, I mean, I mean, Christopher Plummer is Canadian, so he's, he probably knows how to do close to a main accent, which he he does very well in this movie. So yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah the Scottish one. Yeah, I like yeah, his accent. He's, he's a, he, I love that. Uh, so yeah, I just I thought those reviews were really revealing, and I think it's like there was this weird sense of being. Maybe it was because King had you know just done Gerald's Game, and then he did. Dolores Claiborne, and there was this sort of, I mean, maybe people were rolling their eyes at him a little bit, being like, oh, you know, the horror writer is trying to be a feminist now or something, and Mm. there was this, but it's like, I do see this weird, between the book and the film, this sort of, like, weird aggression towards the the stories, you know, male bashing thing, and the thing, it's like, it's just, you know, and obviously it was a different time, and, but I'd say looking back on it now, you know, 25 years later, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's it's so apparent, you know, because we've obviously come a long way. And I do think it's interesting, too. Um, uh, you know, I mean, I think it's interesting to consider that, uh, you know, this was directed by Taylor Hackford, a male director, and it was written by Tony Gilroy, who was a male screenwriter. I do think it's an interesting, um, I mean, it, to me, this is like, I can't imagine it, a woman not directing or writing this like this is such a female story and i think Mm. it does speak to i think if this was ever made today it would never get made with you know um a bunch of dudes behind the wheel i will i'm not going to say that they didn't do a good job because i think they did and kathy bates is very she says working with taylor hackford was incredible i have a quote from her in a little bit but i do think that it's you know when i was reading the reviews i think it does speak to sort of the you know the white male critic sort of um movement um, not movement, but, you know, the some, the thing that people have basically been trying to sort of avoid now, because basically every review I could find, except for the New York Times one, which was written by a woman, uh, was written by a white dude. And so I do think mm. it's always interesting when you're talking about, like, a story like this, which is so centered on, you know, uh, uh, generations of female experience that and, um, and male aggression and abuse, that it is interesting. Um, well, not interesting. It's just kind of bizarre that they're just like, well, hey, let's just get, you know, Taylor Hackford to direct this. But again... Again, um, no comment. He's a very talented director. And Kathy Bates was a big fan. Uh, she said in an NPR interview in which she called this her favorite role. She said it's her favorite role of all the roles she'd done. And she said really? it's because of Taylor Hackford, the director. She says he gave me a couple of months before we started shooting, which is rare in film, to really prepare for the role. She says she worked with a dialect coach for the main dialect, worked with a movement coach to try and understand the difference in moving when you're 35 years old. Uh, versus 55 years old. And I actually thought that, I actually noticed that. I read this afterwards, and I remember thinking, I'm like, I actually do see physical uh, differences in the way that she's playing these two ages, especially in the well scene. I thought that was actually... Mm-hmm. Um, no, I think I think De Niro did it much better in the Irish movies. <laughs> I was just going to say that. Like, yeah, we, I, we need some of the, I, I wanted her eyes to be blue. And, um, and yeah. yeah oh, man. Whoever was her coach, they needs to talk to Robert. <laughs> to, to Bobby D. But, um... <laughs> <laughs> but they basically had the movement and the dialect coach with her on every take. So um, that was something that she was very grateful to have had. Um, she says, I'll, I doubt I'll ever have the luxury of working that way again. But it was so wonderful because it was how I was trained to work as an actor when I went to school. And it was also an opportunity for me as a character actor to play a lead character that goes all the way through the film. So it's one of my fondest memories working. And then she... Um, uh, and then she forgets where they shot it, which was just kind of <laughs> yeah. funny to me. Because they were, he was like, "Did you shoot it in Maine?" She's like, "No, we were higher than that. I don't remember where." And then she says, "Oh my," she goes, "My mind's just gone out underneath me here," which I actually thought was she seems of really cool. Yeah, so, she seems really cool, Kathy Bates. Uh, every yeah, love Kathy mm-hmm. Bates. 
Yeah, so, um, yeah, so I guess, like, uh, and I also thought it was interesting that Tony Gilroy actually did this. I mean, obviously, Tony Gilroy is sort of screenplay, screenwriting royalty these days. Um, he's currently working on the uh, Cassian Andor series for Disney+. Plus. He wrote the script for Rogue One, and didn't he... Like, isn't it? Isn't there reports that he sort of stepped in and directed a lot of it because uh, uh, Gareth Edwards wasn't really suited for oh, it? I, was it him? I couldn't remember if it was him or the editor. So yeah, it was. I mean, there's definitely stories of like I, that happens a lot. I think with Disney movies, right, or just Star Wars movies, also. I think St- Star Wars. It seems like everyone that works with them leaves like disenfranchised and yeah. disgruntled. Yeah, not Tony Gilroy because I think he's the one who he's the one who sort of like saved the movie from a lot of what I've read, and also he's working on the spinoff of Rogue One for Disney Plus. So, but he also nice. he's one of those weird screenwriters who like he can write a movie like Michael Clayton, right, or like The Bourne <laughs> Supremacy. So he knows how to work. He knows how to like tell interesting original stories. He also knows how to work on franchise kind of stuff because he did these Bourne movies, and then he's written a lot of uh, he's written comedies. He wrote Bait with uh, with Jamie Foxx, oh, really? the two thousand movie. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah, yeah, and he uh, he also wrote The Devil's Advocate, which is like a like a Looney Tunes kind of thing. And then he also did The Great Wall with Matt Damon. Did anyone ever see that? No, no. I watched I watched some of it. Just, that I think mo- I was listening to How Did This Get Made, and they were reviewing it. It just it was terrible. Yeah, that movie's like <laughs> cuckoo. Like that's one of those movies where it it was marketed really poorly, where people thought it was just sort of like like one of those dramas about an American who goes you know. Uh, goes overseas and has a life-changing experience, but there's, like, aliens and shit Ooh. in it. It's, like, crazy. So, uh, I think, I, I find Tony Gilroy to be one of those fascinating writers who kind of, like, seems to pivot between a lot of uh, different genres in ways that sometimes really land and really work and uh, and sometimes don't. He broke out with 1992's The Cutting Edge. Do you remember that movie? <gasps> I love that movie. Yeah, that was his first script that he did. So uh, he was I had really, that on VHS. Yeah, and then he did a TV movie called For Better or Worse, and then he did Dolores Claiborne. So Dolores Claiborne was sort of his first big project after The Cutting Edge. And uh, after that, he never really slowed down. He worked on Extreme Measures, Devil's Advocate, and he even worked on Armageddon. I don't think he was one of the main writers, but he worked mm-hmm. on it. And uh, and then he did Proof of Life, and then he got into the Bourne franchise. And basically, yeah, he's... Uh, He's had quite a career, and um, his brother um, did the movie Nightcrawler, which I absolutely love, which was Dan Gilroy. Yeah, Yeah, Dan Gilroy also did uh, Buzz... What was that Netflix movie Velvet, last year? Velvet Buzzsaw. Yeah, oh, Velvet yeah. Buzzsaw, which and I wanted to like more than I did. Dad a, yeah, I, I agree. Isn't their dad like a well-known playwright too or something? I, th- I think they're, I think their dad's Oh, probably. Yeah. Oh, yeah, Frank Frank Gilroy. He was he won the Pulitzer Prize. Ah, yeah. a little, I get, so, hey. Uh, family of writers. Writing is in their blood. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, you got a lot of talent behind this movie. And then, obviously, we'll talk about the cast in a little bit. But it's, it's to me, um, uh... I think that there's a lot of different themes that are running through this. And actually, this movie has been adopted. And I want to hear your thoughts on this, Jen, as well, uh, just because um, I feel like there weren't a lot of movies being made like this when this movie did come out. And uh, there was basically this... Uh, I think a lot of people grasp onto it, especially people who were teaching uh, feminist art. And so I was doing some reading and basically a lot of people were citing this as sort of a self-consciously feminist film and uh, and the ways that it combined melodrama with, um, and somebody said, with the investigative structure of a noir crime thriller in a contemporary feminist consciousness. And mm-hmm. um, they also said the film has been read as a, an example of a maternal melodrama that features an idealized mother figure who's 
sacrifices the needs of her of uh, her own for others. And I think that general trope was something that, you know, was not was pulled from King's book and also from this film as well. And um, and uh, there's a book called Screening Genders that came out uh, that was, you know, very popular. And somebody considered Dolores Claiborne one of the only truly feminist films made in Hollywood uh, in that Dolores doesn't cop out at the end is how they frame that. So I thought that was sort of an interesting um an interesting, uh, you know, turn of events for this movie, which, um, you know, definitely was obviously something King was aiming for. And the question we had in our book episode was, you know, how does the feminism and the uh, the themes of womanhood and also, you know, uh, overcoming abuse and patriarchy and everything, how well does that work? And how well does the, uh, you know, the bitch sort of quote that is used many, I think even more times in the movie than it is in the book, the whole idea of like, sometimes a woman being a bitch is all a woman has to hold on to and Jen you you've read read the book recently yes yeah I just finished it um I listened to it actually I just finished it the other day and I will say too um you guys were talking in your episode last time about how reading it and all the dialect was hard and I'll I think this might be the time where the audiobook is actually better because I didn't see any of the no g's on the end mm. and I just heard like Francis Sternhagen reading it and it was great yeah so if you're struggling with that the audiobook is fantastic. Nice. And, you know, Frances Sternhagen can do no wrong. She so. rules. Well, yeah, I'd love to hear, like, you weren't on the book episode, so I'd love to hear about sort of how you read the feminist uh, uh, themes in this book and just the general idea of that sort of uh, being a, butch, a bitch is sometimes all a woman has to hold on to. That sort of, you know, was divisive a little bit for Anna and Lara when we were on our mm. episode. And I'd love to hear sort of how you interpret that quote and what that does for you. Well, so when I think about it being a feminist book, I think that all of the characters in the book and the movie, I think, are treated fairly. You know, I don't feel like there's really any caricatures. Um, There are maybe characters that could get a little more fleshed out. But so I feel like this is really a story about women and the movie makes it more of a mother daughter story. Um, which is an interesting kind of shift from the book. I don't necessarily know if I see that as much in the book. But, um, yeah, I love, love, love this book. Um, part of the reason that I love it so much now is because I w- my first husband was a lot like Joe. Um, and my dad, I want to be careful how I say this because... Uh, my dad was a lot like Joe in a, mm-hmm. in a lot of ways. There was no like physical anything. I want to make sure I say that there was no, it was emotional, but like I have been in Dolores's shoes and I've been in Selena's shoes in some ways. And so I read this and I was thinking, I just connected with a lot of the themes with it. And what you were talking about, about the idealized mother, like that is what I connected with the most when I read it now, because I had a mother who didn't really do anything about it. Mm-hmm. And so I was reading this and, and watching the movie to some extent and just thinking that's what I wanted. And that's the mother I wanted to have. And maybe if that was the mother that I had, maybe I wouldn't have married my Joe. Mm. Um, and so that's something I, I've just been, I think that's where I am when I'm processing all of this stuff. Um, And there are a lot of things in the book that really, really work. And I think that's partly because they don't focus as much on Selena as they do in the movie. Because the movie is, Selena is an equal, as an adult, is equally weighted against Dolores, I feel like. But, um, 
Yeah, as far as like the bitch comment, I personally, and, and I mean, this is a lot of women are going to disagree with me. I love that. And the way that I hear that is when you become a bitch, it's that you stop playing along, you know? Yeah. And you stop playing the game. Like, like, and when you were reading all of those reviews, I was like, yeah, the movie is being a bitch and you just don't <laughs> like that. And that's why you wrote that. Like, you, yeah, she doesn't have to be likable for you to watch this movie. You right. Know? And I think this movie was a little bit ahead of its time in that where it was just like no we're gonna tell our story and i'm not gonna make selena wear like short skirts and like cross her legs in the interrogation room for you to have to like it and i love that and i wonder like if it came out as is now if it would have gotten a lot more respect and it also would have been written about by like diverse people you know like i bet a lot of women would have reviewed it rather than like men who didn't like it because they well I'm going to not let my anger come out when I talk about that. <laughs> but, like, if that's the only reviews you're reading, of course nobody's going to go see this movie, you know? Right. Or, like, men aren't going to want to go see it with their wives on date night, you know? Right. So that's, that's the kind of thing where I feel like that it was just very 95, yeah. you know? Yeah, I feel like it's the era when, like, if somebody was a vegetarian, you would, like, make fun of them or, you know what I mean? It would be like, oh, yeah. you're crazy. Yeah. Like, all right, feminazi, you know, like, this kind of stuff. Right. And it's, it's so crazy that, like, in the review, the guy calls out the weight, and that's literally what Joe does in the movie. It's like when he right. compares to the boat scene, he's like, "That's what an ass is supposed to look like." And like, mm -hmm. I, you know, to not to just have that totally go over your head to the point where you include it in your review. Right. <laughs> Wait, yeah. It's like, oh my yeah God. Maybe they were just mad because I saw too much of themselves in the movie. But, yeah. yeah, it's funny. Yeah, it's funny to hear the yeah. era, era where it was like, yeah, but being vegetarian so weird, and like, I, I, I feel like this only ended recently, but. um like, oh, like, I'm in therapy because of how crazy my parents were. Now it's like everyone's in therapy, you know? It's like not, not a thing at all. So, mm -hmm. uh -huh. yeah, it's oh, yeah. that's what that's become these You know, it's funny yeah. you say that. It's funny you say that, Dan, because I've been talking to you about this, but I just started watching The Sopranos yeah, for the first yeah. time. And what I think <laughs> oh, is... Oh, really? Wow. Yeah, I know. It's, it's, I've never oh, seen it either. It's a huge blind <laughs> oh, spot great. for me. Huge blind spot for me. But I'm watching it now because I'm just like, hey, I'm in quarantine. I should watch this. But it, what I think is so interesting about it was how sort of the entire show was built on the premise of uh, of the idea that strong men don't do therapy, right? You know? Mm -hmm. And, like, that's sort of uh, the hook of that first season of The Sopranos. And I love the way it sort of investigates the, you know, sort of the vulnerability and the doubt and the existential terror that sort of exists within these people who are ostensibly bad and the way that that is unpacked via therapy. Because therapy was not a popular thing, you know, when... um when uh, this when that was made. And so I think that there is a similarity in just that sense of how, because now it's like therapy is so common that the therapy scenes in The Sopranos, like they still work, but they are they are in a way dated and a portrait of another time. And yeah, it's so, like a great hidden shame of like, yeah. I think it has something to do with kind of the Catholicism, Catholic upbringing too, where it's like, no, no, that's like a shameful thing to talk about. Yeah. Actually experiencing, mm -hmm. like you don't have emotions and like, Hey, Tony makes some breakthroughs though. So stick around. <laughs> yeah. What? Yeah, but I yeah, mean, therapy's like cool, you, cool now. You know, I feel like you know. What I mean, I say this to someone who goes. Oh, through. I know. Yeah. Hey, all this. And it's yeah, amazing. It. All my nieces, all my nieces oh, are in great. therapy, and they all love it. That's, so. that's good. Though. Yeah, it's just, like, gives me hope. Like, and they yeah. they love it. So it's um. So yeah, I'll just but I'll just say like I've talked about this in the pod before, but it's like it does remind me too of um, of when I was young, like. 
I was like people, my teachers wanted me to be in therapy because I had, I clearly had issues, but I was, but like every time I was taken to a therapist, I basically like shut down and wouldn't talk because it Mm -hmm. was something my parents had sort of demonized for me a little bit too. And, uh, and basically were like, well, you can do it if you want, but can't we just talk this out at home? You know? Yeah. I I, I was made to see a therapist, but I kept figuring them out and it felt like they were on therapy <laughs> and then i would go solve math problems at the local community college oh um, my so god I can <laughs> sorry no 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 it's funny and i but i do think it's interesting like there it it, it is sort of such a portrait of another time and i do yeah. think it's important to look at like it, it it was easy for me to forget that this came out in 1995 you know and i mm-hmm. that was something that i kept having to remind myself as i was watching this i have one question um before we kind of really dig into the characters but Obviously, and I do, I do actually really respect this adaptation because it reminded me a little bit of the, um, like, sometimes book adaptations, you know. Like, what I, what is interesting about this one is that it is really faithful in a lot of ways to the events, but just, you know, like I said, the structure is completely different. And it made mm-hmm. me think that that made me respect Tony Gilroy a lot because he didn't just say, okay, I'm just going to slap this onto paper, you know. It, I think actually you know, when you look at a book like Dolores Claiborne and you ask, how do I adapt this? It really does, you know, you have to consider what medium and I have to think about the filmic medium and I need to say uh, it won't work the way it is on page on film and I have to sort of restructure this entire thing. And it reminds me of, um, of, Brian Helgeland's uh, adaptation of L.A. Confidential, James Elroy's book, which is, uh, you know, one one of the best movies of the 90s, L.A. Confidential. But, you know, you read the book and they're very different beasts, but they needed to be that way because it's, you know, Brian Helgeland was somebody who really understood the cinematic medium and understood, like, how that story needed to manifest on screen. And it reminded that and it made me respect Tony Gilroy a lot just in terms of this, because, uh, you know, the book unfolds under over one long monologue uh, that is written from Doris, uh, uh, Dolores perspective in her main brogue and it is you know basically her uh bouncing between time and all these different memories and what i love about this adaptation is that you know tony gilroy basically says okay well i can use sort of the shifting timelines uh in the same way that the book does but it can't just be this woman recounting it in an interrogation room like I need to activate this story a little bit more and that's kind of what he uses Jennifer Jason Lee's uh, character of Selena for and what he really does is he takes sort of a couple lines that are near the end of the book and turns them into an entire character because Selena Mm -hmm. you know Selena's um we never meet her as an adult in the book. Uh, we do get the hint at the end of the book that she and Dolores have basically, you know, are trying to mend their relationship. But Dolores says that when they talk on the phone, which is rare, but when they do, she can tell that Selena's been drinking and she worries that uh, Selena's gotten this from her father and the fact that she's still struggling with the, the demons that her father left her with. And basically, mm-hmm. Tony Gilroy took that description and that idea of a character and basically brought it to life with Selena's character. But I do wonder though, like, do you guys think it still could have worked if it did hew more closely to the book, if we were in an interrogation room and we were uh, just getting the flashbacks, you know, like would that still operate successfully for you as a film? I mean, I don't know. It's I, I was thinking about that a lot while watching because for the most part, I do think structurally it's a really good pivot. But then there are a few moments that do feel like a little bit of unnecessary convolution. Like you had that little subplot with Eric Bogosian back in New York, which to me is just, it just feels kind of um, un- mm-hmm. not needed. 
And then it's weird because I actually was longing for, in the beginning of the film, to get a little bit more of Dolores and, and Joe pre where he hits her at the piece of stove length. Because that's such... Yep, that's me so, too. And, and look, Joe's a piece of shit throughout. It's not like they, they could have done it in a way where, oh, well, um, we think he's a good guy for a while. But, but I think an important part of the book is we do see how they were in high school, and that becomes this stark reminder to her that almost makes her not kill him. Um, once we get to the climax and everything. And so I think because literally the first scene we see of Joe is like j- just him doing one of the most horrible things he does. Well, not, not the most horrible thing he does, but one of the most horrible things he does in the book. I, it, it just it just seemed right off the bat like we were going into melodrama. And I think the performances across the board are incredible in this movie. I think David Strathairn is great at playing that role realistically. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But it did make me... It just kind of made the movie feel faster than it actually is and maybe it's because i just read the book you know um yeah so so that that was one i would have liked a little bit more of the pre-abuse stuff um from the book and and maybe excise that bogosian plot a little bit um and then like it's it's weird the i I feel like the surprise that she didn't kill vera is not as much of a surprise because of how the structure is, you know, like in this, like you (laughs) you can't know from the beginning what's going on. And I think that's just because we're so much more rooted in all this other stuff in the contemporary timeline outside of that, that like, it almost feels like, like an afterthought, but that was, yeah, that was, that was my thought. Fleeger, have you reread the book recently or or not? I'd be curious. No, it's, it's, it's been a long time, but I do remember the manuscript quality. Um, But I actually really enjoyed the adaptation of making it kind of like a film noir. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like a style that I just really enjoy and like, you know, kind of the idea that she's a journalist, but she's kind of playing this detective, you know, Jennifer Jason Leigh, drinking, smoking. There's a rich old lady that's kind of funding some of this, right? There's police corruption with the magistrate. And even I thought like the eclipse yeah. at the end, um, a lot of film noirs will have a, like a scenes of like contrast with like a black and white, you know, almost like Sin City or something. So yeah. I thought the the effect of the eclipse really changing the lighting, which is kind of, yeah, I guess that's neo-noir. I don't even, you know, I don't know what that term means necessarily, but <laughs> I'm imagining that, you know, this would fall under that. But um, it so really, I, yeah, I the, the eclipse really does become sort of an aesthetic thing rather than a thematic mm-hmm. one like it does in the book. I mean, obviously yeah. the, the Jesse subplot is is excised um, or at least the connection between them, which makes sense. But uh, mm-hmm. but I do, I, it is interesting how the eclipse sort of becomes this aesthetic thing that I do think sort of does speak what you're saying, Flieger, to the uh, to the sort of the um, the noirish aspects of this. So. Yeah, I thought it, it was, you know, it's like that heightened sense of, uh, reality that's happening and it's just it's a weird scene but uh i guess jen you probably read the book the most so how would you <laughs> compare it to the movie i think i probably could have used a lot less um christopher Plummer. not that i don't like him but i just don't that that was not interesting to me at all in the movie and i i am having a hard time like figuring out if it's because i already knew everything that was going to yeah. happen and i just wanted to see the parts i like because i was watching it with my husband and he had no idea what was going to happen and i kept wanting to ask him okay so what do you think is happening here and what do you think like do you think she really killed because i like i agree i don't think there's really much of a mystery that she killed either right, one of them right you know and um i love that they framed it 
I have so many mixed emotions about this movie because like I feel like there are so many things that they did really well and that they showed like the reality of some situations and some things where they just really missed the mark and like got pretty close but not quite there and I think a lot of it is because they were probably it was written directed by people who have not experienced these kind of things and just some of it felt off you know and I was like comparing it to because when you have so much adult Selena in here, it almost becomes like more like a Gerald's game story, you know, because yep. that is about the grown up version of a child who is abused by her father. And I feel like it was just so much done so much better in Gerald's game. Of course, that's also what 20 years later and we've just learned a lot more. Um, but yeah, that part there, I love that we see so much of the effects of Selena and I like that, they frame it in that way, but I just, I, there, there is something that just did not work for me here. You know, does it, does it have to do with the scene where we see her being molested, um, by, by Joe? Yeah, there's, well, yes and no, because there are parts of that that I love and there, cause there's, I, I don't love anything in that scene, <laughs> but what I want to say yeah, is that there are parts of that, like there, <laughs> there's a moment where her eyes just go yeah. blank. You yeah. Know? And that is like, that's dissociation. And I think that's a, that's an accurate representation of what that kind of experience is like. And I like that that is seen, you know, that's something that happens that we don't see or really understand. But what I don't like about that is the way, like that's an uncovered trauma memory. And that's not the kind of thing you just remember. And then suddenly you turn into a lawyer after right. you've remembered this thing. Yeah, you know? I was thinking it, about that. Yeah. Also, like, I don't like the way, I don't know if this is the right place to talk about this, but like, I didn't like the way that she, Dolores was like, oh, you don't remember this terribly traumatic thing from your childhood? Well, sit down and we're going to have a drink and I'm going to tell you like, no, 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 you have to work up to that. That's extremely traumatic. Like I'm in the process of trying to pull up repressed memories and you have to like it's it's hard and so that's where I feel like it missed you know yeah but everything else I feel like they did a really good job of representing that and I like that we see that because the book is so much more from yeah. Dolores's I was gonna say too with and then once again this is it's tricky to talk about this stuff so I hope I don't put my foot in my mouth but um and and, and I would yeah <laughs> I too I do not enjoy watching that scene on the ferry it's very uncomfortable and unnerving <laughs> but mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and I will say, like, because you mentioned her performance, which I totally agree with the moment of dissociation, and then even the way David Strathairn's playing it, I this I, I hope, God, I hope this doesn't sound like I'm having sympathy for him, because I'm not at all, obviously, but I feel like from an actor's perspective, because you, you just see how pathetic Joe is in that, in that, in, in that performance, that situation, mm -hmm. you see how, like, desperate he is, and once again, not excusing it, I don't feel bad for him, but it's sort of like... Because he seems really vulnerable and, and, like, awful and lame in that scene, as opposed to, like, the roaring drunk maniac, it almost makes it sadder and more disturbing and lends this element of pathos to it. And once again, I, I guess, like, mm -hmm. whether that's useful for any, someone as a viewer is just going to depend on their, their um, just their limit for how much of that stuff they can watch, right? And I totally get if someone doesn't want to yeah. watch that mm -hmm. scene. But I did think, I'm like, oh, this, this weirdly, the, weirdly that we're seeing this, it kind of adds, like... A, another albeit gross level but still like another level to joe and that we don't quite get in the book um like i said i hope that doesn't sound like i'm, I'm saying i feel sorry for him in that scene because i don't um yeah no 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 i think no. And, I, and i think yeah you go jen 
I was going to say, I think that speaks to his performance because, yeah. like like I said, my first husband was a lot like him. And, like, that they have that pathetic quality and they're able to, like, pull that kind of thing out. And it adds – and that's why they can exactly, manipulate yeah. it easily, you know? And so I think the fact that, like – that seeing that performance because in the book I said there were no caricatures and everybody was treated fairly but we don't really see that in the book we just hear Dolores mm-hmm. describe it and so I think seeing that added like this menace and more humanity but in like a manipulative yeah. way to Joe that I That's do like it. yeah some of the gaslighting in this uh, yeah. um, yeah. so a lot of you know I agree with a lot of what's been said too and I do think the way kind of like how we were joking earlier about the vegetarian you know feminism thing like People in that era, especially in Hollywood, had a very shallow understanding mm-hmm. of these things. So their understanding yeah. and, you know, description of abuse is also pretty shallow. But the more you look at it, you're like, he is gaslighting her. They don't really get, you know, they don't call that for what it is. But there's all different types of abuse that are going on. Mm-hmm. Um, so by the time he finally visits that, you know, and you do see her kind of like kind of get out of herself. And I think you mentioned a book on our last one, Jen, uh, the body keeps the score. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And like, I was going through some of that online and it does seem like there's a lot of stuff there that at the time, the audience, it probably would have just went over their head. You know, mm-hmm. it went over my head when I was a little kid and I watched it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There are a lot now, of reactions that are very accurate. And I was like, Oh yeah, I've done that. Yeah. I've been there. <laughs> yeah. That's what you do. Yeah. And yeah. I do, what I do think is interesting. And I think what speaks to what maybe didn't work about it for you, Jen, and you mentioned this was, was that as, as affecting as that scene is, and it is, I think it's it's acted really well and framed in an interesting way. But the thing is, like, you know, we we are framed through Dolores's perspective in the book. And mm-hmm. in here we do, we are still mostly framed through just Dolores's perspective. But here it's that scene on the ferry that we really do depart from Dolores and suddenly we're in, we're seeing things from Jennifer Jason Lee's point of view, which is something, mm-hmm. you know, we never got to do in the book, which is very interesting but the problem i think is that it's used as a plot point you know uh this is you're dealing with something that is extremely traumatic and and this idea of repressed memories remembering this memory and um instead of sort of processing that trauma it sort of turns into the engine that drives her back to defend her mother you know Uh and that seems a little bit like that actually touches a little bit on some of our criticisms that we had on the book episode, which was that Dolores sort of seems like this reliable narrator, where as opposed to an unreliable one. And that was in this idea that um, even though it was written from her perspective, we're supposed to believe every word she says. And that's mm-hmm. something that is a little bit, I think, uncomfortable for a reader, especially uh, like an investigative or an inquisitive reader. And so um, I think that, it sort of frames everything through the idea that Dolores is always right. And, mm-hmm. um, and so, yeah, I think that was sort of the thing about, I think that scene was used well, but you know, the idea that someone would remember a trauma that massive and then immediately, you know, like the first reaction is to go in and, you know, play lawyer in this uh, right. scene was a little bit, was a little bit weird. Like I, you know, w- during that scene with Jennifer Jason Lee in when she was defending her mother, I didn't, I didn't see the residue or I didn't see sort of the impact of the revelation she just had. Well, yeah. Yeah. It was more like, Oh, you were yeah. right. One, and, mm-hmm. and the people in my, my yep. life, um, and I have some people very close to me who have had repressed memories of, of sexual abuse and trauma. When the memories come rushing back, it's almost, and I'm sure it's different from person to person, but it's almost been like this 
incoherent kind of freak out, right? Like it's not just like you're not, Mm -hmm. yeah, you're not like an, oh, cool, I'm going to go and do this two hour defense now. Um, Yes, it was strange. Something I did, I did want to mention real quick, and I'd be curious to hear if you got, you all think this was successful. Is uh, something I did like just aesthetically in, in the in the adaptation was how they jump, just like how the camera and the lighting and everything like that changed between the two eras. Like I actually thought the two time periods mm. wove together very seamlessly just like in terms of direction and fluidity and everything um and i appreciate that because i feel like that's not an easy thing to do in a movie that that jumps back and forth like that yeah that's mm-hmm. definitely in like sort of what we're going to talk later about like our nightmares and dreamscapes about this like the good and the bad uh the things we really love the things that we didn't like and that's definitely the sort of visual aesthetic of this film is definitely in that for so, uh, me stay tuned, i think this everyone. is a really <laughs> yeah stay tuned it is a very beautifully shot uh film um and just especially i mean the the setting especially is so integral to really capturing the mood of this film but yeah let's move on and talk a little bit I mean, we've already talked about the characters a little bit and sort of the performances but let's Let's uh, dig a little bit deeper into that in a section we call Heroes and Villains. I'm gonna have to kill this fucking clown. Welcome to the Losers Club, asshole! <laughs> Welcome to Heroes and Villains. It is time to talk about the people. Uh, we, I, I actually, since we already talked about him a little bit, I feel like it would be helpful to maybe just kick off and continue our thoughts on David Strathairn's um, production at, or production performance as uh, Joe. Um, this is a tough character to play, I think, in a lot of ways. Be, I mean, for many ways, but you know, even on the page, this is a character who. Since we're he's framed through Dolores's perspective, he is you know a piece of shit and pretty goddamn like purely evil. And then uh, in the scene where he does fall down the well and he starts clambering out of it and everything, he literally becomes a monster. Like he is you know like like a zombie in that scene. And so it's it's a tough thing to play. And I actually was enjoying his performance. Like, what you said, Dan, earlier about how we don't get to see Joe and Dolores, like, pre, you know, abuse, I think is a really good point. But there was, like, you know, what I did like was there was, like, maybe a minute where we got to see him and Selena, like, and you could see why she loved him because he Mm -hmm. was being playful with her and having fun with her and being sweet with her and, and basically, you know... Uh, giving her positive reinforcement. And I was like, oh my God, like these were the scene, this was the scene that wasn't in the book, you know, because we never really got to see the positives between him and Selena in the book, or at least the reason why she remembered him fondly. But we don't get to see that with her and Dolores in the movie. So, uh, but the thing was, I was actually, I enjoyed his performance a lot because I feel like he did his best to like in that moment when he had the split down his pants and he did uh, the he did sort of the mooning bit, oh, you know, God. Oh, um, God. Was... yeah, like but it's like you had this moment where it's like, oh, OK, well, maybe that's like what they're like when they're just goofing. And it was a at least a moment that could be read as, you know, OK, well, this is their, you know, rapport, at least a let the tension out. Yeah, something mm-hmm. like that. And I enjoyed those scenes, but then I, I feel like pretty much everything after that from him, as good as he is as an actor between them, it was just that it was very similar to the book and just that it was sort of an antagonistic relationship, a very cruel relationship. And he was just sort of, you know, and a lot of that dialogue that was used between him and Dolores in those scenes was pulled. I remembered it vividly from the book. Like he, it's, it was pretty um, verbatim from that. So it's like, I do think that he made a lot 
with what was a character that, you know, isn't very multidimensional on the page. And like you mm. said, Dan, too, about that scene with uh, him and, and uh, Selena on the ferry, it's like he does really infuse that pathetic quality and that, that you know, there is sort of a quiet shame in there, too, you know? It's like he's mm. really trying to push down the shame that exists be, and the the sort of carnal, perverted qualities are kind of winning out, so. Can I make one comment about him? I, I actually, when he first came on, I thought he was Harry Dean Stanton. <laughs> and I actually think that might have been even better casting for this. Mm. Um, just to kind of go with the strangeness and, like, the otherworldliness and, like, in every movie, Harry Dean Stan looks like he doesn't really want to be there. Which, <laughs> you know, it, like, it, looks, it makes him look like he's elsewhere. But I think that would be good for, like, kind of an absentee. Think, Harry Dean Stan's, like, uh, let's see. He, I, mean, I guess he's only 20 years older than, I was going to say, is he, like, 40 years older than? But this was 25 yeah. years ago. But, <laughs> yeah. yeah, but the he funny thing, though, like is with David, because uh, I, I liked David, uh, was it yeah, Straight Theron? Yeah, Straight Theron. I don't know how to say his, his name. But he, he I was say in, Straight uh, I feel like in Good Night, Good Luck. Yeah, uh, that was the River I loved the River yeah, and he's so right. good. Um, and, and I'm I'm actually watching while we're all trapped inside. I've been watching the show The Expanse, and he plays a captain. Oh, nice. um, on that show too. So it's just been fun when you kind of you know get back into an actor, and then you start seeing them appear in other roles. Um, but yeah, I mean, he's the guy you love to hate, right? Like he's <laughs> yeah. a total asshole. You, you know, you're rooting for him to just kind of get his. Um, and yeah, the cruelty is just so when he's. Not only is he like, oh, the guys were making fun of you, and I had to tell them, you know, then I had to one-up them with making fun of you. It's like, that's your mm-hmm. wife, and you can't even yeah. stand up for her, you know, and he, yep. it's just like the way he's kind of grooming, you know, his daughter, too. It's it's just such a he, It's funny, dude. too, because, like, I feel yep. like I, I mean, the first thing I saw him in, yeah, was The River Wild, um, which I, I really love. And uh, he's, like, such a good guy in that. And he's a really good – he has a ton of integrity and good and good luck. And a lot. He, he's played a lot of roles where he's a really good person, right? And I think that, and I think, from what I can tell, I think he's known as being one of those actors who doesn't live in Hollywood, who keeps himself. He's been married to the same person the whole time. You know, he he seems like just a very good, mm-hmm. wholesome dude. I said not knowing him, and so yeah, I think it just speaks to him just to see him like play <laughs> such a miserable piece of shit. Like, I don't know, just maybe watching it, it, it's funny too because, like you said, Joe is a tough character, and it's it's tough to take a lot of the stuff that he does in the book, even though there are guys like that there i'm not saying there aren't but i think because he's such a good actor there is something kind of magnetic about watching him in the movie you know just, like i don't like mm-hmm. i don't like the character but i, I like watching david strathern just do his thing because he's so fucking good so, yeah yeah no i, I like um, a good jerk and, <laughs> yeah. and, and you know any kind of like whether it's an adam sandler movie and i'm like that's the bully guy like i just love hearing like what they say and i think there's you know, there's a couple insults he throws, and I'm just like, oh, God. Yeah, exactly. Like, O'Doyle rules. So, like, it's just fun to see a bully on screen sometimes. Um, yeah, yeah, I think with uh, – it's funny you mentioned how you thought it was Harry Dean Stanton. I was always – I'd seen this movie before, but I just didn't remember. I always thought Ed Harris played uh, – played uh mm. joe in this movie because uh, he's such a king regular you know so yeah it's like i i when i read the book i i was picturing because i thought he was in the movie i was picturing ed harris but then so i was like totally shocked when i watched the movie and I, it was david stray there but uh but he's great and I, yeah i think it's yeah. it's it's a tough role it's 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 complicated and i think he he isn't afraid to like the thing is he's fully aware that this is both a person and this is also a rotten person and that uh-huh. rotten people are also people and he plays them like a person but he also never tries too hard to like like amp up the warmth you know what i mean like even that scene like i think what i liked about the the little scene that we get between him and selena where we see uh her affection for him is we do see him being like offering her positive reinforcement and being sweet to her but he's never too sweet you know what i mean and like mm-hmm. 
It's just sort of that idea of how a child sort of idealizes their father and how he doesn't have to do too much work to be the cool dad, you know? And uh, and so I thought that was really interesting. And um, yeah, and so it's a tough role and kind of a thankless role that I think he does really well. But but let's talk about Kathy yeah. a little bit. I mean, obviously she was coming off uh, Misery. I mean, not coming off, but, you know, she had uh, won an Oscar for Misery four years previous and... Um, you know, this was, I think, sort of an event uh, for her, the idea that she was returning to King and being in this. And I think she's perfect casting. But uh, how mm. would you guys say that? Like, did you have any like Annie Wilkes residue while you were watching this? I didn't at all. Yeah. No. Yeah, yeah I, it, I actually had forgotten about that until we started talking about it. Um which is odd because in Misery, she's playing the Joe character, you know, mm-hmm. not as disgusting, but like she's playing that side of the same equation. And so it's interesting to see her on the other side of this, you know. Yeah. 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 And I actually think, I mean, this is like a much richer character, too. Right. Because mm-hmm. when I think of Annie, you know, there's not a whole lot going on mm-hmm. beneath the surface. She's pretty bonkers and obsessive. Right. Whereas like yeah. Dolores, like you think of what she's had to go through in her life and just, you know, even the working for I think 11 years just to have all of your wages stolen so it's not just that you worked but you worked in an abusive you know employer it's terrible yeah and I just think she really I I did not think of Annie I think until you know after kind of like you guys yeah I think the only the only Annie moment that came to mind and I wrote down that I it was hard and the thing is this is straight out of the book but you know Dolores basically raises the hatchet to Joe oh, after yeah. you know she hits him in the head mm. with the mm-hmm. with the with the milk uh, a jug and then she raises the hatchet to him and the, everything in that scene was straight out of the book but it was hard I had that moment where where she was holding the you know and it's a hatchet not an axe but you know it's it's a very similar instrument and I was like. I feel like that the idea of her holding an axe would have been very fresh in the minds of people who saw it, you know, in theaters at that time. And it, and it made me groan a little bit, but also I'm, I also remember it's like, they weren't exploiting it. They weren't overdoing it. Um, like, cause it, I guess maybe it was like, I had traumatic memories of season two of Castle Rock <laughs> and this whole idea of how like they took Lizzie Kaplan and basically had a scene where they gave her an axe and she like killed somebody with it. And it was supposed to be like a badass moment. And I'm like, mm-hmm. you do realize that like Annie Wilkes is torturing an innocent person. Yeah. <laughs> like, in misery. Mm-hmm. And like, like the idea of her having an axe and like killing people is not a badass moment. Like it's actually really yeah. cruel and ugly and nasty. She's <laughs> not the hero. <laughs> right. And so I think that, again, that speaks to just my larger issues of Castle Rock season two. Hey, but... I, I just gotta say, I, I'm the only one who, I didn't like season one, but I like season two. Oh uh, yeah. Stand well, up for we it. gotta have you talk about it on a mini side. <laughs> no, Mike says he wants me on to go against both I, you guys. I no, no, no. I, 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 fully... I like season one, but I haven't seen season, season two. Although I, knew, I didn't, I didn't never watch the finale of season one. I heard the finale kind of sucked, but um, yeah, yeah. I, I, I thought yeah. of uh, it's funny. I didn't think of anything. Um, any Wilkes really? I'm sorry. I'm also just thinking now. Like, what if she raises the hatchet? Just goes to Joe. Like, I'm your biggest fan. Like, I'm just like a, a really dumb callback, but. Um, <laughs> No, like, but no, the, the camera, the yeah. I thought Annie Wilkes, it had nothing to do with um, performance or anything else. And the, the, maybe this belongs in King's Dominion. But when Vera has her get the China pig, I thought of the pig she holds in misery. I was like, mm, I was yeah. like, oh, that's like a, I wonder if that's a misery callback. Because I don't, is, I can't remember if the, was the, 
Yeah, I think it China is. Pig in the yeah. book because I don't think it is right in, in Dolores Claiborne. No, it's yeah. not. And that was actually I I have that scene marked down. I want to discuss later. I actually thought that was really yeah. lovely. And um mm-hmm. and yeah, but it, I th- I do think that may have been sort of a conscious nod to her role in Misery, and that was interesting to me. But I do think that Kathy Bates is a strong enough actor that you know she totally. It's like she's so immersed in that role and and she's she's operating on a different frequency you know because Annie is so intense and like frantic and uh hysterical at times that and also scary like like Dolores can be those things but she's operating on a different wavelength and there's a, there's a more of a sense of control and there's a sense of uh you know tragedy and and sort oh, of, um, I don't know, just too. like I mean, she's just her person. Uh, yeah, morality mm-hmm. and and just like a motherly quality too. All of those things sort of exist, and I think that they really, I think that speaks to why she really does transcend. Like she's not, she's not like I do think it's actually quite impressive that she's able to not be, was able to not be typecast in those kind of roles, like as like mm-hmm. crazy women roles, you know? Because uh, I think that really does speak to her strengths as an actor. Um, and yeah, she really does. Like, I never, like, aside from the hatchet moment, I really didn't think about misery at all during this. And I do think that speaks to that. And I do think, you know, I mentioned earlier her quote about how she had sort of a movement coach with her. That that seems very helpful because I, I say, I swear that, like, this was one of the, the movies where I really bought, you know, that she was, like, in her late 30s in the flashback mm-hmm. scenes and then 55 or so like in her 50s in the forward scenes like I actually really bought the movement I saw the difference in the performance like the scene when Joe is chasing her towards the well uh all of those moments for me like there was a there was sort of a physical quality about it that really resonated with me in the sense that she was operating differently and I was buying her as a younger version of that character. Like this is actually like you know you mentioned the Irishman earlier, Flieger, <laughs> and I think that's sort of the big difference is like is that I mean, you know, I think I like the Irishman more than some of you guys, but it's like, you know, when you watch like Robert De Niro kick the shit out of the guy outside the fruit store or whatever <laughs> when he's supposed to be like 30 or whatever. Yeah, it looks like he is like a he looks like a football player that's like waddling off the field after an injury. Like <laughs> But no, but speaking of the phys- physicality of Kathy Bates, um, so I actually watched Titanic was on. Oh yeah, uh, last oh. night on CBS. So I was like, oh, I haven't watched this in a while. And uh, her portrayal of Molly Brown, who I believe is like a philanthropist or like mm-hmm. struck oil, or, you know, she's, she's like got like that. Riches. Yeah, yeah. So she's you know can kind of bridge both classes, and the way she carries herself, like she has a very masculine like you know standing position, and like when she walks into a room, she kind of takes it over. And it just made me really appreciate like what a great actress Kathy Bates is. Yeah, she is. I kept trying to think like, did they age her up or did they young her down? Because I think you're right. I bought both versions of her. And I think like there are so many amazing actors in this movie, but she's the one that really has the room to like hit all of the emotional beats that you need to hit, you know, because mm-hmm. this is, there's such a range of emotion in this story. And I think that's part of why like, 
Joe feels a little melodramatic to me is because all of these things that he's doing, they're just so close together and there's no space for him for like the humanity of just him being a normal person to be there. And I think she gets that. Mm -hmm. And she and I mean, the story's about her. So, I mean, that's fair. But I think she's really the only one that gets the room to go to all of those ranges, which is why I think her she like feels the most grounded in the story, which I mean, is what you want for the title of the movie. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, let's talk a little bit about Jennifer Jason Lee here. I mean, she's basically creating a character, not from whole cloth, but from a lot of cloth, uh, with Selena, who is not a major character. I mean, we see her as a child in the book, but um, but we don't see her as an adult much. And I will say that I kind of rolled my eyes initially when she first showed up because it's very 90s Bohemian New York, you know, <laughs> like yeah. all black sort of journalist, you know, which made me laugh mm-hmm. a lot. And especially those early scenes with her and Eric Bogosian in the um, in the uh, <laughs> newspaper office. I love Eric Bogosian like for like I've yeah. I've been a huge fan of his since I was in college. And it's always fun when he pops up and stuff but yeah you're right dan like i i could totally do and, and, and he's great he, he's great it. like i love I'm, it's uh Fleeger, i just saw your text uh uncut gems is on netflix and he does a great performance of that i'll probably watch that movie for like the yeah. sixth sense i love that he's become a meme yeah. now because that like that image of him behind the glass barrier staring out is like basically become like a meme <laughs> I, now and i i love hey, that eric forget, uh, has been memed him, him sitting in front of the eiffel tower and oh yeah that's right. yes. well, no, no it's funny is i iconic image the thing i always think of when it comes to eric bogosian is uh, uh a few years ago randall and i wrote these things called the shame plays which were like fake plays written by existing playwrights <laughs> that were just shaming the audience and randall wrote one with eric bogosian and we knew that this guy rush who actually looks kind of like eric bogosian i think that and his plays are like very profane and he always plays these very like fast-talking New York guys, you know? And uh, what, what was the line, Randall? Did he just come out and go, I'm Eric Bogosian, you fucks, or something like that? Yeah. Like, that's, like, always what I think just of. Just started berating and, everyone, and yeah. And all the interviews I've read, he actually seems like this very, really kind, nice, like, soft-spoken kind of guy. But his plays are known for being, yeah. very, like, one-man show, fast-talking New York. But he, yeah, he, he is great, but yeah, I can yeah. just do it without that subplot, I think. Right. Yeah. But yeah, I, I thought it's a long I movie. thought she was inter- I thought she was like it was an interesting choice to sort of uh make her this hip New Yorker, all black, bohemian kind of character. Um and yeah, I, I guess like my question is, um, did you enjoy her performance and did you enjoy sort of her being because like like Jen mentioned earlier she is sort of a like co-protagonist with Dolores like she's not a supporting character I'd say she's like just as major of a character as Dolores is in this story so how did you guys feel about her performance overall I loved it man I yeah. thought it was yeah, good I, I liked she's, it she's a, hey yeah. she's a tremendous performer uh <laughs> you know she's <laughs> yeah. I mean, and, it, and, it, and it, it, I think <laughs> overall even though I do have some issues with the extra, the extra plot that's thrown in there, especially the, yeah, the contention with her and Christopher Plummer is just, also seems just a little, I, I, I will say this, I think she is, she puts so much into the character, and I think her relationship with her mother is rich enough that I don't need the other stuff to round her out, you know? Like, I think her, her substance yeah. abuse issues, and I love the way she sees the the reflection when she's remembering the, um, the past experience on the ferry. Like, I think all that stuff is complicated and mm-hmm. rich enough that I just don't so it's not, not nothing to do with the performance for me but like I felt like they almost went a little 
too far with trying to pad out her story and give her something to do. But I, I mean, I think Jennifer Jason Leigh is awesome. She's yeah. such a fucking good actor. Yeah, I think if I have a problem with her character, it's what she's given to do rather than the yeah. way she does it. Because I think she does, she's phenomenal in this. And like I, I saw a lot of myself and like her reactions, you know. Um, and there's this one part when she orders the drink. And this is something that has stuck in my brain for the longest time. And I couldn't remember what it was from. But when she just says, I'll do this again. And I just love that. <laughs> I don't know why. <laughs> that is stuck with me but she just like she kind of just embodies this mood of anger and like detachment and like her panic attack is very like realistic mm-hmm. I feel like I just don't always love like the parts the times when I have problems with her it's when she's asked to do something that doesn't feel right to me and I don't think that's her fault you know yeah yeah, yeah. no I I, I yeah, I really enjoyed her performance in this movie um it, it does, I guess her character kind of breaks some of the film noir because she would have been the detective. But mm. in a traditional film noir, too, you would only learn information as Jennifer learned it. Um, and they, you know, they have some of that with like the cassette tape. But so much of this movie takes place um, with Kathy Bates, you know, existing not necessarily in the same scene with her daughter. So it kind of breaks from the tradition of a regular film noir. Um, but I thought it was cool. And like, it's the idea, too, that she's always wanted her daughter to kind of, you know, break free escape. So it makes sense that she would go live in New York city, you know, and kind of independent can do it, can take the hustle. The only criticism mm-hmm. I would have is also though, that the way that nineties portrays like urban culture, <laughs> you know, or, you know what I mean? Like metropolitan, I guess I should say like early nineties, you know, it's just, everyone is such a fast talker in New York city. <laughs> right. It's, you know, as someone who I'm from New York, I've lived in Chicago, I've worked downtown, like people were, it, it's it's just funny the character and like the stereotype and seeing like what does not land, um, yeah. but and then especially in the early '90s though, there's like a Steven Spielbergification of, oh, we're gonna give you the here's the big city and you don't know exactly what you're gonna you know the guy's like hey this bagel's cold or, you know something like that. Uh-huh. You carry a fax machine around yeah. in your bag. Yeah, like how do you work this thing? And they just like punch it and it prints out the fax. But yeah, it's like I kind of just thought it was unnecessary that we, you know, the the, and I think it does speak to the idea of maybe patriarchy or uh, men sort of taking advantage, maybe. But the idea that she was also like sleeping with Eric Bogosian's character because yeah. she has that yeah. line where she's like, "So not, so you're not only not fucking me anymore, you're fucking me." Which was a line I hated. Yeah, but well, uh, it's like we, I think because we see her abused by a man so extremely, right? Like in the in the past, right. and also too, I think we could have the stuff we get from the New York scenes. I think we could have just gotten through some of her dialogue. Like, what's what's the line Dolores has where she's like, um, uh, "What don't you have nobody or something?" And she's like, "Oh, I've had a lot of nobodies." Or I, I can't, I'm, I'm paraphrasing. Yeah, which is oh, a good yeah, line. Like, like that, and that gives lot. us kind of everything we need to know. And we and we see how she is dealing with alcoholism and, and prescription medication. Like, I think I think seeing the the sort of payoffs from all the New York stuff is much better than seeing the setup for it. Cause the setup and, and who knows what, maybe it is just the dated thing. Like you're saying, cause don't they say in the beginning, like, um, like, ah, oh, come on. Like, ah, oh, you got your big story kid or something like that. I, yeah, I know. Yeah. 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 And yeah. it just like, he said something. He's like, Oh, it's really good. She's like, Oh, it's excellent. He's like, I said it was good. <laughs> you know, he kind of like cuts, <laughs> but it, but it is interesting too, even like the age difference. Right. And like, her having the issues with her father and then, yeah. you know, the stuff now that's come out with like Matt Lauer, right. Yeah. And like how Charlie Rose, how newsrooms have sort of this weird dynamic of like these older editors sort of preying on the new employees. And, you know, 
they don't explore it too much. I feel like they treat it more like a 90s, like, oh, I was dating him and now he's dating someone else. But when you actually look beneath the surface, there's a lot more going on there that, again, I don't think people maybe picked up on when this came out. Yeah. Yeah. It's like viewing sex as a transactional thing, which yeah. is something that a survivor of abuse might do, you know. So I did, like you were saying, I do appreciate that being acknowledged. I just don't know if I need to see a scene that sets it up. Right. Exactly. And yeah, also, it, just it, like he, they were setting up this whole, she's like, I need this story. And he's like, he's like, there's other stories. And I'm just like, well, what is the story? And like, because we never really. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And why couldn't they have just made her a lawyer? Right. Because that would have made that last scene work a lot more. You know, she's like, oh, I've been in courtrooms. I know. Right. Like, it, her being a journalist is not important to yeah. the, because she could have had a big Well, also, too, if, she, if she's a lawyer, you know? then that actually ups the stakes a lot. It's like, oh, I have to, I, now I have to go reconnect with my mother because she doesn't have anyone else, right? Uh-huh. And then also, and then on top of that, it's like a question of, do I reconnect yeah. with my mother? Do I, do I want to come to her defense rather than, oh, I'm getting the scoop? Yeah, right. just come like help her get her house in order because she she more or less acts as yeah. a lawyer in this I, I think, right? you know what's yeah. funny I think before I started rewatching, I, I, I kind of remembered her as being a lawyer because of that of that final stretch um, yeah so. me too do you think him directing uh, the devil's advocate so soon after he just had like <laughs> lawyer characters on the brain like he was like a perfected a workshop it here and then perfected with Keanu. I bet he was he was directing it and he's like he, like halfway through writing Devil's Advocate, he's like, I should have made Jennifer Jason Lee a lawyer. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's one of the things I think maybe was a little too slavish to the book, you know, because yeah. I don't you know, I do think it would oh, work right, a lot yeah. better. Although how do you top Keanu Reeves? Right. What, what if yeah, they just cast exactly. Keanu Reeves as Dolores' son instead of instead of a the roles. The way you pronounce lawyer with the Nashville accent is way better than Keanu Reeves managed to do <laughs> oh, his yeah. southern pronunciation because it's like yeah, liar. Either, yeah, oh, his liar. accent is, I, I like I actually like Keanu Reeves as an actor, but yeah, his accent, his '90s accent work is um, is leaves something to be desired. And I, I like I actually like his performance in Devil's Advocate and in Dracula, but the accent is so is it's, they're so funny in both movies. Uh, let's let's talk a little bit about uh, about. Judy Parfit, who plays Vera Donovan. She is not an actress that I am familiar with. I think she's uh, British. Yeah, she's from England, and it looks like most of her uh, TV and film work has been in UK productions, but, uh, like, basically IMDb lists Dolores Claiborne as her, as kind of her top most well-known role, which is interesting to me. Is this for Judy? Uh, Wait, what's that? Which character is this? Uh, Vera. Oh yeah, no Judy. Judy Parfit, yeah. I, I actually know I've looked seen up her. Is yeah, that... I looked. She's on a British crime show that's actually called Vera. Ooh, nice. That was a IMDb oh, deep dive. I've never seen it. Just... I never will. <laughs> yeah, Vera Donovan. But I thought she was. Um, for me personally, this is not an actress I was familiar with, and I thought she was incredible. Like, I think some of my favorite moments in. Uh, the film were actually some of the Vera scenes, which, you know, and I think that was the surprise of the book. If you listen to our episode, I think we all started sort of not being hyper invested in the very storyline. We were more interested in the Joe and Selena storyline and, and the murder stuff. But then I think by the end of the book, um, you know, the Vera and Dolores storyline kind of becomes the real heart of the book. Mm-hmm. And it's really lovely. And just the friendship and the, the, well, the sort of the tenuous friendship that sort of develops between these two women, this reliance on each other and this, uh, can this, um, 
confidence that kind of exists between them is sort of what I think is really beautiful about the book. And that's what I love about the performance here is, is Vera doesn't get as much time, obviously, to unfold as a character. And, you know, we don't spend as much time learning about her uh, her um, bowel movements as we do <laughs> in the in the book because there's a lot of shit shit store stuff yeah. going on but yeah it's uh but i do love that we still get a lot of the connection that exists there and we get sort of the hard mm-hmm. shell that exists around vera and also sort of the monstrous quality of her and the, her declining years we lose some of the complexity i think with with the way her memories haunt her and um and those moments but we do still kind of get dig into the idea that her husband was was cheating on her and that she basically was responsible for his death yeah, yeah <laughs> so we but we don't get the regret and we don't find about about her children dying in the the right Right. i i I know this sounds i'm not trying to be funny i kind of wanted a little bit of the shit in there i kind of want like i'll i'm gonna (laughs) i want to save the well talk about the well scene for future categories but um yeah, it's not because I just want to see Poopy on the screen, a la uh, Holly. Give me so your favorite your favorite character is Joe, and you wanted to see more shit. What? I just want, I, I, Daddy needs his Poopy on the screen. No, but um, no, <laughs> no, no, but I think because maybe it's because the scatological stuff in the book makes it. I know it's not a traditional horror novel, but it like adds some of that grotesquery to it a little bit, and I think it does. Weirdly, I think the poop because it's such a gross explicitly repugnant repellent thing i think that in a weird way complicates the relationship between vera and dolores like like when you see the woman be a confidant and essentially urge you to take to take ownership and kill your husband which dolores very much needs to do i feel like when you also see that coupled with oh my god she later on in life she she's had to literally clean up this woman's flinging shit all over the room it a it shows just like two different sides of the relationship and also it kind of like justifies and explains the shit a little bit more. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, I, know, I think it just like adds another, another shitty layer to it. The, well, there's like the intimacy that it creates that, you know, you see someone yeah. at their lowest and then, you know, she's Kathy Bates has been so armored from her own abuse at home that she's like one of the only employees that seems like she totally, can handle exactly, Vera. Right. Yeah. And mm-hmm. Vera's recognizes this and especially when she yeah. needs her at the I end. Mean, yeah, no, no, I guess, I guess our taste levels yeah. are going to vary whether or not we want to see like a, like a train spotting, Sheet rip shit spraying where <laughs> I don't know. I want some God. more poopy. I just want some more. I've been, I'm, 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 more poopy. I'm cottoning to Holly. Yeah, I want it to be between parasite and train spotting <laughs> levels of shit. I want, I'm cottoning to Holly. I, I want my poopy. <laughs> yeah. But, but I, I actually skipped that part in the book. Oh, you skipped the poop part? <laughs> you know, like, I do. Yeah. It's just, I've read it once. It's enough. <laughs> <laughs> I love shit. <laughs> No, that's like Ooh. me with uh, with the death of the dog and evil things. I'm like, I read it once. I never need to read it again. So. Yeah. Yeah. And I like, I love Vera. Every time I read this book, I like, I like Vera more aside from the shit scene. Um, although sl- saliva is what really gets me. I've like, I've got two kids, so like I can handle poop. But yeah. um, like, I, I love her character so much. And uh, like Randall, I agree with you. I think some of my favorite scenes in this movie are her scenes. Um, and I think it's because like, 
I try I try to be like her more because I'm just like I feel like I apologize for everything and I'm always afraid that like people are going to be mad at me or not like me and so like I don't necessarily see her as much as abusive as just like this is what she wants this is her house this is the way she wants it mm-hmm. and I think the way Dolores frames it in the book kind of colors the way I see her in a lot of ways but I think towards the end you just see she's just she's very direct and I think she has paid the price of being a direct woman in a world that doesn't like direct women you know Ooh, interesting yeah and i i do think though it's no this it's similar to the idea that the well scene is sort of is sort of um you know condensed somewhat and defanged yeah. a little bit somewhat i get mm-hmm. that with i think that that maybe is something that doesn't hit as hard as it does in the book the the vera storyline only because we don't really get that the sense that, you know, like we see the empowering side of Vera, but we don't see the regretful side of Vera. We don't see like the right. the collapse of Vera. And that I yeah. think is is something that is, 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 it hurts the film a little bit. It's not a huge issue. And I think the film can, you know, obviously operates without it. But that is something that gives the character and sort of the future of Dolores, like the idea, like it helps frame the sacrifice of Dolores. Like she's going to be haunted by Joe the rest of her life. Whereas mm-hmm. like here it's seen more as just kind of like, okay, it's done. Yeah, 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 Yeah. and it's almost like an empowering thing, Mm -hmm. you know. When I don't feel like it's painted that way in the book at all. No, no. I mean, it's it's something that is is horrifying and horrible for her, and and it does, and you know, and I think a big part of the book is how much it it does. Like she she saw it as a way of saving Selena, but it also fractured her relationship with Selena, which is obviously explored and unpacked more in the book or in the film, but we get sort of the resolution here in the film and what the book points towards is sort of a, you know, an eternal fracture that will always be there. Um, which is, you know, more powerful in a sense, but not not necessarily transferable to film, uh, at least in a satisfying yeah. way. Uh, let's talk about John C. Riley playing um, the local <laughs> constable. I was very surprised to see him. Uh, pleasantly surprised. I mean, there's never a time mm-hmm. I'm not happy to see John C. Riley. But and you know, this came at an interesting time in his career. I think he was like right on the verge of doing. Boogie Nights. I'm looking at the date yeah. now. Um, it's like, oh, oh, hey, hey, Dolores. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, who, who is that comedy bag bang that, that does him bigger? Oh, Paula Tompkins does a perfect. It's just like, oh, oh, hey, like yeah, hey, oh <laughs> this was actually he actually hadn't done Hard Eight. Oh, wow, yeah. I thought he had I already done Hard Eight. Re- I was so, telling uh, oh, wow. I was telling you guys earlier. I I always confuse the director who we, we actually mentioned just now on this episode. Um, Curtis Hansen, who directed Ellie Confidential, and. Taylor Hackford because they both use David Strathairn and John C. Riley in movies and maybe even in the same year because they're, they're both from the River Wild also and and John C. Riley in R- River Wild also plays like the second banana just to a bad guy to Kevin Bacon. Um, yeah. But, uh, and well, David Strathairn. David Strathairn's also I, in L.A. Confidential, which was directed. Oh, by that's right. Oh God, it, fuck! It, I'm not, I get it, them so confused. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no, it reminds me of, in, in, when we were growing up. Dan and I would do the Six Degrees of Kevin Bacon. Uh, ever since like middle school, and you would always use the River Wild for some reason. That was like a cornerstone <laughs> yeah, exactly. movie to bridge I, it's a good I movie. back I to Kevin Bacon. I saw it when I was like ten. I think I and I, it may have been the first thing I saw Kevin Bacon, and definitely the first thing I saw David Strathairn or John C. Riley. And, and they've both done so many movies. So uh, and of course, it may have been the first Meryl Streep thing. So hey, what, what can I say? I love the River Wild, and uh, yeah. I uh, <laughs> love the but, but yeah, he. 
he had done What's Eating Gilbert Grape and oh, Hoffa and Couch Tease of War and then uh, before he did Dolores Claiborne. And then, yeah, it was kind of right after Dolores Claiborne he did Hard... Like, that's basically when he hooked up with Paul Thomas Anderson, did Hard Eight. And then, uh, you know, the following year did Boogie Nights. So it's like, it he, was it was happening I mean, for him he's, then. He's so. always oh, so endearing. I, I mean, I, and not, he's played, he's played mm-hmm. bad yeah. characters before. Not that he can't play a villain, but man, he's just... He's another guy. He's like so likable and so easy to watch. I mean, I will say this. Susan and I are watching this and, and she's like, I feel like John C. Riley's looked like he was 40 since, like, pretty much, you know, like, <laughs> since he was in his 20s. Like, Seriously, he's, yeah. you know, he's a little bit heavier now, uh, but, like, he's he looks, like, pretty much the same and has the same energy to me, um, even 25 years or however, however many years we are later. But, yeah. Yeah, he's, like, a nice little, uh, mm-hmm. he's a nice little foil, and they don't overuse him or anything. Like, I, I actually, weirdly, I think like his character more than Christopher Plummer's just because I feel like they're not they're not trying too hard with John C. Riley. You know, he's just the affable kind of right. assistant. Yeah. Wait, what's crazy is um so I was looking up the awards and because there's so many big actors in this movie. Yeah. You know, just the fact that they got Christopher Plummer in it too. Like um but I think that one of the only awards it won went to uh young Selena, Ellen mm. Muth. She won a Tokyo Film Festival <laughs> Best Supporting Actress Award. Really? Yeah she's, she's good. really good actually. She- she really is, yeah. I don't, are we going to talk about yeah. her? Yeah, <laughs> let's do it, it now. I love her. Um, yeah, I didn't have any notes about Tom C. Riley. Wait, <laughs> Tom C. Riley, yeah, <laughs> Thomas C. Howe. I love him, but he's just one of those people that I'm like, oh yeah, there he is, and then I just immediately concentrate yeah. on everybody else. Like I literally have nothing under him. Well, he, he, he's also like, <laughs> but he's, he's kind great. Of like when you see him, you sort of he because I, I just think he's so fucking funny. So he just always makes me laugh, even though this isn't an especially funny part. It's like an um. In the beginning of Dead Man Walking, we <laughs> Jack Black plays like Sean Penn's brother who's back at home, and he, I don't even think he has any lines. He just kind of comes out and leans on the car, but it's so funny because it, it's like Jack Black, so like his presence just yeah. feels uh, yeah, it feels bad. What, what were you gonna say, Jen? I was say he's he's like a safe presence in a movie, and then you can like concentrate on the other people, you know. I don't know, but I do think he's great, and I think the addition of that character is part of what makes this a feminist movie because we see a man like a non-toxic man in this. Yeah, movie tell too. tell that to mm-hmm. Lieberman. Uh, apparently, yeah. <laughs> I'll tell him a couple yeah, yeah. of things. Should we talk about talk about Ellen Ellen, um, Booth, Ellen Bootha? Yeah, talk about yeah, young let's talk about Selena. Ellen Booth. Uh, she oh. plays young Selena, and obviously a very very difficult role. So, what do we think mm. about her? Oh, poor Selena. Man, she gets one scene in this movie where she's like a happy, normal kid. Mm-hmm. And every other scene, she has to like be super traumatized or like attempting suicide yeah. and it's, or like, you know, doing some other terrible things. It's just, it's a rough role, but I believe everything she does, you know? Like, I think the scene that I love from her the most is when the second scene on the ferry with her and Dolores where she's telling her what happened and just, like, the the mannerisms of, like, hitting your head or, like, pushing the mom away, that's, like, just very... Like, it felt very real and very authentic, and I've had those kinds of reactions, you know? And I just was so impressed by a young actress being able to do Has that. she done mm-hmm. anything else, um, like, since uh, since this? Or? She was on a few episodes of Hannibal. Oh, really? Yeah. Um, the TV show. Yeah, she's, like, had the skin on her arm taken off. I don't know. I was, like, Google image Ooh. searching beforehand, and I was like, oh, yeah, she was in Hannibal. Yeah, she's acted in a hand- handful of stuff, but she hasn't acted in anything since Hannibal in 2013, so... But Ellen, uh, but yeah, I mean, do some more. Yeah, come back. We're good at really good. At <laughs> come back. Maybe she lost her taste for acting yeah. after that. Yeah, come back. <laughs> uh, oh, she was on Dead Like Me. Uh, that was that Showtime. Um, 
Yeah, she was on the Showtime series Dead Like Me for 29 episodes. I got really so, excited. Hey, that's a good gig. She's in a, I saw Jack and Jill, which is one of the few Adam Sandler movies I've left to watch. And I was like, oh, cool, she's in that. But it's a, <laughs> it's a short film called Jack and Jill. It's not not the Sandman classic, uh, Jack and Bill, Jill. Yeah, I think... <laughs> classic. But I do think that, um, you know, I don't know. That's that's really difficult stuff to, to navigate. And I think that there's a lot of um, vulnerability and a lot of realism and a lot of, um, I don't know, like... Uh, what's the word I'm looking for? There's just a straightforward quality to her performance that I think is really mm-hmm. moving. And like, there's you know, with kid actors, sometimes there's a lot of tryhard kind of qualities going on, and there's there's kind of a naturalism there that I think works and is also yeah. really hard. She seems very vulnerable without putting on uh, air. You know, I, I agree. Sometimes younger actors or children actors almost like they're cute and they know it, so they kind of play up that child actor thing, right? Um, you know what I mean? Like, but with her, it just it does seem like genuine vulnerability and like. I think she's just she's a good actress with her facial uh, expressions as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, good physical actress. What do we think of um, Christopher Plummer as Mackie? He's kind of a villain here. <laughs> he's a bad boy. Yeah, he's an asshole in this bad, movie. He's a bit he's of a bad, bad boy. boy. Plummer. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, like all the notes I wrote were like, "Stop yelling at yeah. Selena!" I know. <laughs> I just got so mad at him. He was. Couldn't yeah. they have? I, I forget in the book, but the, so the magistrate and the detective John McKay. I feel like those characters maybe could have been merged. For this film, mm. yeah, I think that's why I'm like forget. Look, sorry. So the Scottish guy in the body, I think I just remember, I, I get picturing like the Scotsman from Ren and Stimpy, yeah. like interviewing them. But like the like the <laughs> Scottish guy is who interrogates her in the '70s, right, or the '60s, um, right? Like who, who like doesn't believe her kind of kind of thing, and then she she gets away from him. But that's different yeah. than, the, than the current than the contemporary investigator. Yeah, I guess the timing wouldn't work out, but I just, yeah. it, it, I think they maybe got Christopher Plummer attached and they're just like, look, we have no, this great amazing, actor. Yeah. We got to put him in this We're movie. And, like, he's good, you know, but I think he sort of illustrates, he doesn't feel like his character doesn't, like, you can tell he's sort of a screenwriting character. Yes, like, he's yes. a character that yeah. has been written to sort of serve as an antagonist, an adversary. He's kind of, he's pretty one dimensional and uh, just kind of there to help, um, you know. Uh, raise the stakes a little and also um, make Dolores feel a little bit more like she's in danger. And I think like he just sort of feels more like a screenwriting tool, a plot tool rather than an actual character, yeah. which is unfortunate when you've got somebody like Christopher Plummer. So, and I, and almost yeah. ra- when you got Chrissy Plums, yeah. For me, it comes down to that scene in the bar because that I'd almost rather just see him in the interrogation room, right? Because then at least the movie's being... It, mm-hmm. It's making no bones about him just being an exposition kind of character, you know? Like, we're just seeing him in this procedural place. I think when we when we see him in the bar, the way he confronts them, then it becomes like, oh, we're trying to add this extra element. And yeah, it just kind of doesn't... I mean, I don't hate it, but yeah, it does, I, I think you could literally like cut that scene and the movie would would still work just fine. Um, but yeah, hey, we love Christopher Plummer. Love him in The Sound of Music, Undiscovered Country. <laughs> <laughs> love him in Sound of Music. <laughs> Uh, yeah, he's. Uh, no, I actually really do like him in Star Trek. Then I, I always like him. He's a. Uh, he's a. He's, he's a good boy. Yeah, he's, he's a good boy. He's a good actor. <laughs> he's a good boy. Um, a good boy. Any other characters you feel like calling out? Any other smaller characters that you thought, hey, I they they worked for me? Well, I'd, uh, Bob, Bob Gunton. Yeah, oh, yeah, Bob Gunton. I should mention that in the award. And uh, coming off of, or was it going into? No, this is after yeah. Shawshank. Yeah, right? it was a year after. Oh, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So, you know, playing the warden, uh, was it Warden yeah. Morton, yeah. I think? Mm-hmm. Um, and then in this, a very similar Mr. Pease, but I guess <laughs> yeah. he's a little bit Mr. nicer P. in this one. 
Well, that's interesting because he's such an asshole in Shawshank. And so, like, if you, if this is the year right after, like, I imagined Mr. Pease being a pretty sympathetic character in the book, but he's not at all in this because of who they chose to cast there, <laughs> yeah. which I thought was really smart. Yeah, he does He does bring some baggage within the King verse, I think. Uh, and it yeah. is funny. Your past books belong to me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um... And then I'm trying to think if there was any others. Uh, I mean, I'd argue, uh, no, I'd, argue say... the, I'd argue that uh, New York City is a character in this movie, and so is Little Little Tall Island. <laughs> also, <laughs> both characters. Oh, yeah. I didn't notice. That's a good point. <laughs> good point. Good point. All right, I think on that oh, the note, the skyscrapers. It's like a concrete jungle. I mean, who could live here? <laughs> on that note, let's move into a section we call nightmares and dreamscapes. If you think your dreams are disturbing. <laughs> Imagine the nightmares of Stephen King. What are you, some sort of a horror movie guy? No, Clyde, I'm a literary guy. Welcome to Nightmares and Dreamscapes. This is where we talk about things we loved and things we hated. Um, I think we can each maybe share one or two things that we loved and one or two things that we hated. Let's start out positively. Um, And I'll say, I'll start off by just saying that the China pig scene where... Uh, Dolores fetched sort of the um, the China pig for Vera. It was a really intense sort of um, I don't know anxious scene. It like made me uncomfortable because there was we were seeing a lot of Vera lamenting her life and uh, spiraling into this dark pit, and it was a very sort of dark, unhappy scene. But then I think the juxtaposition of of once she got that pig and she stared at it and kind of like fell into this trance while watching it, that was like a really nice directorial move on the part of Taylor Hackford was he really just lingered on her watching that pig. And there was this moment of like calm after that really kind of stormy scene that that to me was maybe one of the more uh, impactful emotional scenes of the film. And one of the reasons I think I really love Judy Parfit's performance because she really, um, you know, sold that kind of, you know, it was like almost like putting a toy in front of a screaming child, you know? And, um, Mm -hmm. but the way that she sold that, there was something just really beautiful and really also, um, you know, empathetic about it. So, uh, what's another thing that maybe stood out for you guys? Like, is uh, something that you loved about the movie? Um, one of the th- I'm trying to think of what I haven't talked about already. Um, the thing that I, one of the things I love is the hanging the laundry scene where she's talking about her like her hands cracking, and I love that part in the book. And I think that's just such a like a simple like torturous way of describing that. And that's an example of like when voiceover is working effectively for me. And I just loved the the minute detail of it. I love it in the book, and I think they did a really good job of bringing it into the um the movie yeah i agree one one thing i loved was the danny elfman score yeah Mm -hmm. um i i love danny elfman so much um and just going back to that kind of early 90s mid 90s danny elfman i mean this is coming what was this movie 95 yeah so it was Uh, after you know Nightmare on Elm Street, Batman, Mm -hmm. Beetlejuice you know just I, i watched Beetlejuice recently as well um and just as soon as Danny Elfman kicked in in the movie, I was like, oh, right, I totally forgot that he scored this. But I, I think it really stands out compared to uh, other Stephen King movies. Mm-hmm. Um, some of the song choices in those could be a little interesting, whereas <laughs> this is like a legitimate, you know, music composer. And it, it adds a, a, you know, like a weight to this film. It makes it feel like more of an important movie. Um, and I think that, you know, this is largely held up as one of the better King adaptations. And I think the score really helps elevate it. Yeah. Do, do y'all think? Uh, do you think 
what's better, Danny Elfman scoring this or ACDC's soundtrack for Maximum Overdrive? <laughs> <laughs> so, I think they both serve the movie that they are attached to. Uh, yeah, that is true. That <laughs> they is both true. achieve the art they're they trying to it. establish. My my uh my dreamscape is actually the same as my nightmare. So the, oh. the well the well scene. Um, so we already talked about how we go into that almost film noir kind of filter with when the eclipse hits, and I, I actually think the lead up to Joe falling in the well is pitch perfect. Like I really, mm-hmm. it, it's yeah. so back and forth. It feels messy, which I like in fight scenes on films. Yeah. Um, it, and I think it's because it's pretty word for word from the book. I love the way he falls and everything. And I like too how I know I know part of why the the aftermath maybe feels a little bit anticlimactic is because it feels like this release that she's not going to have guilty feelings about that being said i do like how she looks up at the eclipse and it almost feels like this redemptive kind of thing for her we see the light coming out in this almost heavenly way mm-hmm. but but my my big but i i wish man i and i don't know if it's just because once again we, we just read the book i really wish we got that we got him crawling out of the well or even if we don't get that at least hear him at the bottom of the well wailing for her and everything yeah i just think it hits so much harder in the book and it just makes it just show it shows what a big decision she's making to kill her husband rather than it making just like a clean break and so it's right. weird because I, I'm, I'm so with it up until he falls in and i had this moment of just like oh wait that's it that we're not going to see the him his face at the bottom of the well and hear him wailing or see him crawl up and get hit with the field stone so it was it was like the payoff was so good but or, or the uh setup was so good but i wanted a little bit more payoff but did i don't know if, if y'all felt similar yeah oh, yeah i agree yeah I, I absolutely felt similar that's one of my favorite parts of the book is 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 sort of the the idea that her plan didn't go as well as it could have the idea that she has to sit and listen to her husband die um and then mm-hmm. also in a way you know and then she ends up having to you know kind of kill him herself it's 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 really brutal and unforgiving, but I don't know. I was thinking about it, and I'm like, well, you know, it's like I bet the producers were like, I don't know, man, we're already allowing you to explore incest and, and abuse in this. I don't know if we can do this extended murder scene, you know? And also, it is <laughs> yeah. more of a drama than a horror story, you know? And, I, and there is something very king and horrific about the well, like him climbing out of the well. And, um, and I wonder if maybe the director was like, that might shatter the dramatic qualities of this, you know? Like, yeah, yeah, it's a much more genre. That, that's probably the, the most genre-y that the book gets, you know, from a very genre right. writer. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. And I love it. I mean, it's it's what makes the book sort of distinctly Kingian to me in a lot of ways, and it's one of my favorite passages. But, but yeah, I sort of... So I could understand why they cut it, but at the same time, I do feel like it does lose something. Um, so, yeah, I agree. But I will say that, you know, like you were saying, the aesthetic of the eclipse, I was I was struggling a little bit at first because so much of it is filmed, you know, obviously in Nova Scotia. We get all these beautiful uh, shots of the clouds, the clouds especially. Like I felt like were just shot so well. Like there was just scenes when they mm-hmm. when they look like just rolling rolling clouds of lint or something. It was just this perfect gray, and it was really beautiful. And um, but then you know you get sort of the the seaside kind of grandeur of it all. But then uh, that scene with the well was clearly filmed on a soundstage. Uh, you could sort of like yeah. tell the way that it was shot, that it was, that they were oh, in yeah, front of a green the, screen. You see the green screen. Yeah, sure. the yeah. green screen is pretty obvious. And But I will say, though, that despite that, I ended up being won over uh, by 
um, sort of the visuals of the eclipse and the way that it was framed throughout the uh, the well scene. So overall, I think I was happy with it, but I did struggle a little bit, like because it just became so clear once we went from filming, you know, in the real world versus filming with. It reminded me a little bit of like the Mother Abigail scenes in Hemingford Home and the yeah, stand. Yeah, that's why I thought about the home. Yeah, yeah, which just feel a little bit community theater, you know. And um, if you if you look in that uh, unkempt lawn briefly too, Randall Flagg pokes his head up. And, <laughs> Proves of the well. He goes out the well. <laughs> like, and he goes, oh, well. And then he turns into a crow and flies away. But uh, and It's the version of him that has feathers in his hair when he's flying. Too. Uh, <laughs> something I absolutely hated was, okay, so we mostly like, I think like we were a little bit uh, wishy-washy on the language. Sometimes we really loved it in the book. Sometimes it was a little bit much. And I felt the same way about the movie. Sometimes I thought that there was some fun color and the things that Dolores said. But every now and then I was like, all right, you know, uh, roll it back a little bit. And the one that I think killed me was when she called, I can't remember who she called this. Maybe it was uh, Plummer's character or maybe it was Joe. But she called him the Grand High Poobah of Upper Butt Crack. Uh-huh. Yeah. And I just wrote that. it down and I just shake in my head and I said, absolutely not. Like, well, what was the, what Flieger, what was the line you said about the dime? I, I actually didn't know what that meant. I was like trying uh, to wrap my head around so it. So yeah. basically when she's speaking, uh, Dolores is speaking to the Chris Plummer or the detective McKay. She's like, I bet the last time you were sorry was when you needed to use the pay toilet and the string on your pet dime broke. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I, so, oh, so the, okay. So it's like she, he, he she he needed a dime for the pay toilet, but what well, you a, know a pet what's a pet dime? Like, I think it's I, a like, dime because you, you know the string you, you, you put it and then you can pull it out of the machine. Yeah, yeah. Oh, very standby. It. It's like uh, a, a metal. They call them a slug. Um, mm. But what's funny though, Caffrey, now you mention it, all of her insults have to do with like butts or bathroom <laughs> because she does say butt crack. She says I'll kick your butt till you look like a hunchback, and now she's saying. He can't go to the bathroom. He's gonna have to go in his pants, I guess. Yeah. Oh man. <laughs> Makes him fudge. I love the poopy. Yeah. Yeah. Fudge. Yeah. Catherine, are you loving this? I. I <laughs> hey. Look. I like. I mean, despite my uh, my negative okay. feelings toward Holly, give me. I do like poopy. <laughs> I love poopy. <laughs> um. What other parts did you guys hate? Uh, the ending, we've talked a little bit about this, but the ending, like when she is suddenly a lawyer and she says, these two women were in the love with each other. And all I could hear was Kramer saying, can't you two see that you're in love with each other? (laughs) And it just took me totally out. It was like a mix of that Seinfeld episode and like a few good men. No, not a, yeah, a few good men at the end. Like I kept expecting her to like slam a book down or something. It just didn't work for me at all. Um, and some of the imagery, we've kind of already talked about it, but there's a moment when she smashes a window with an axe. And I don't know if I've just watched Friday the 13th Part 3 recently, but I was like, was this part supposed to be in 3D? And they just <laughs> didn't end up doing it. But it was just so bizarre. And took, a couple of those things took me out. Yeah. Uh, what else the, What else rubbed you I, the wrong way? One thing I don't like, if I can go on back to the reviews, so... The writer from Entertainment Weekly gave this the really, I think, the review that we all agree we don't like. <laughs> Turns out Dolores works for Vanity Fair, which at the time was a computer or a competition, I should say, with Entertainment Weekly. Do you mean Selena? Wait, Dolores, or, or Selena, you mean? Uh, Selena, sorry, sorry. Um, <laughs> I was like, oh, shit. No, no, but, well, cause, well, when Dolores is going through Selena's purse, she finds a badge that says Vanity ah. Fair. So that's, so Selena worked for Vanity Fair, but that's, I wondered if Entertainment Weekly ah, was a little I jealous, love- although they actually merged <laughs> last year, so maybe not, but <laughs> I love the, at the time they were I competing. Love the, I love the idea of Owen Glickman, like, 
in the theater, like, oh, this is pretty good. And then he sees the Vanity Fair thing. He's like, you motherfucker. <laughs> 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 so bad, yeah. They got that Star Wars exclusive before us. <laughs> Although it is funny because King ended up writing for Entertainment Weekly down the line. Yeah, um, yeah. He had that column for, for a while. I bet him and Owen had some tense exchanges in the hallway. Yeah. He's like, look, just because you have the same name as my kid doesn't mean I'm going to like you, Owen. <laughs> I read that review, of that D-plus review of Dolores. <laughs> yeah. One, one other quick line, too, that actually, I mean, it's kind of like Caffrey. It's good and bad. But um, when Vera at one point says, she's like, you'll feel better soon. And she's like, I'll never feel better again. And that's pretty terrifying. And I kind of got lost thinking about, you know, at a certain point in my life, I might hit that where you're like, it's never going to get better than it is right at this set. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's only downhill. And that kind of bummed me out for a little bit. Yeah. But it also made me understand <laughs> why she wanted to kill herself. Right. Like, I thought that was a really good line. And similarly, the line that she has, like, right before she dies, when she's like, um, I hate the smell of being old. Like, that line mm. really got under yeah. my skin, too. And I didn't remember that from the book. It could be in there, but um, I didn't remember that. And I thought that was a really powerful line. Uh, just, yeah. Mm. So I thought that, you know, those kind of lines that sort of wither your soul a little bit, but they're they're powerful nonetheless. So, um, so I'm going to move on to our next section. I don't think that we would have, for this particular movie, um, a lot of Cemetery or Pound Cake or King's Dominion. So I'm going to fold all of these together in with our final thoughts. Dad, can we go now? What's the bottom of the truth? There's another world out there. I know there is. Everyone in fandom, everything in But sometimes, that is better. You said that a half hour ago. Yeah, my dad's weird. He gets like that when he's writing. So we're going to move on. But uh, I would say, though, that if you have anything for these sections, now's the time. So um, is there anything here that you would say... Uh, genuinely scared you within this movie? I have two that genuinely scared okay. me. And one, I think, was Vera, her death scene. Like, I, yeah. this is the one thing I remember from the movie is the, how bright the blood was on her, like, washed out skin mm. and how it would go, like, go in between her teeth. And it just really creeped me out. Um, and that so that was my one. And the other one is more probably a personal thing. But like all of the scenes with Joe just really they were hard for me to watch and they were really affecting because I think he did such a good job of um, like kind of playing that character. And it just they, that was what made this movie scary for me, you know, and that, that I can understand other people not really seeing as much. But it, and I don't want to go so far as to say it was a trigger because this movie didn't really trigger me. But it just it, it was pretty accurate to some things that I've seen. And yeah. I think that speaks to the strength of his performance, you know? Yeah. The, uh, the very, yeah, the very scene actually, it almost felt like a, like a low key version of, uh, Zelda from Pet Cemetery. Just, just the idea. Yeah. Of, uh, like even just the makeup and her red hair and everything. It just, I, I, and I, and I, I honestly, I think it's more just about King's really, really good at capturing the, the horrificness of getting older and dying like i think he's always, that's yeah, always yeah. been a strength of his so yeah i yeah, i too was was freaked out by that and um yeah i know he mentioned the to jen's point about david strathair the yeah that scene i think him pivoting from joking around with his with his uh the moon joke to the hitting her with a piece yeah. of wood i mean now yeah and it, yeah, obviously not scary in the way that like uh <laughs> freddy krueger scares me but but like uh yeah scary, yeah that that was definitely the most like horrific and and i think i still think that the well scene the lead up to it's pretty frightening but i think it could have been more traditional cemetery had we 
had we incorporated some more elements from the book. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. There was one more line that did scare me when Vera is talking to Dolores and she says, how long do you think it'll take him to find you? And that line just sent chills down my spine. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Which is really a me specific thing, but you know, that's, that's why I think a lot of people don't leave relationships like that because you know, where are you going to go? Right. You know? Right. Um, how about pound cake? Was there anything that made you a little bit hungry? For me, it's like, I guess, like... It's a scatological <laughs> humor for Caffrey. Yeah, I was going to say, like, the butt crack lines, like, I guess, file under pound cake, but that's also a little bit of uh, nightmares for me. I mean, obviously, guess, this is... What isn't... about the, the, the line with Bogosian that you brought up, Randall? That, yeah. That's kind of pound cakey, like the, yeah. Yeah, just, like, and that whole concept of, of her being, I don't know, like... Those those were always I think those were just sort of the least convincing was that relationship and and just the way that she you know even that phone call that they have as well where she's just like oh you're fucking this other girl now you know it's like it just <laughs> it just doesn't strike me as uh, it, it seems a little bit base for what this story is trying to achieve but but you know Dolores yeah. Claiborne not not the the foremost purveyor of pound cake so <laughs> the bedpan part was kind of gross too oh yeah there was some sloshy yeah. piss in there well, yeah uh, we, we didn't yeah. have much pound cake for the book either there was more in a in like i think a gusher of a period was one there was some lines <laughs> here and there but uh oh god yeah yeah, yeah, gusher. yeah, yeah. just that yeah. line so weird yeah. Freight, like, freight. yeah and as for king's dominion i mean obviously we get a shawshank reference uh which must uh, have been kind of fun um especially this came out a year after that movie came out and like probably a lot of people didn't you know, don't realize that these books take place in the same universe within the King canon. So when Dolores mentioned Shawshank Prison, that was probably kind of really fun for a lot of people. Um, well, here's here's a, a question about that. Actually, I wondered this because I didn't realize all those movies were produced by Castle Rock, which was, of course, named after um, yeah after Kingstown, which is named after the Rock and Lord of the Flies. And Rob Reiner, I think, founded that company. But do you think that because they're they're all produced under the same studio? Does it go beyond just like seeing oh like Pennywise the Circus and Dark Tower like like is it canon like that all these movies take like so I guess what Stand by Me, um, uh, Shawshank Redemption this what were, what what was the other one was there one more that was Castle well Rock I was actually I, I I have a pretty attenuated one but I'll save it. <laughs> well what yeah but do, do you guys think like it, it like the the studio is looking at it like oh no this literally takes place in the exact same cinematic universe as I I, I, I think there was the enough. All you yeah, needed was a couple yeah. writers on the staff that had read Stephen King books, and they probably would have tried to work it in in little yeah. ways. You know, I feel like if, yeah. I'm assuming that if you're writing in Hollywood, you're reading a bunch of Stephen King at that point because, you know, he's, he's producing tons of stuff. So I don't yeah. think you could help but include a little bit yeah. and understand and, and that it doesn't have to be a direct connection. It can just kind of exist in this ether of the Stephen King universe. Yeah. Well, and and obviously too, like it, this this kind of predates the the true cinematic universe type stuff we've seen in the past decade or so with Marvel. So like the connections aren't going to be that elaborate. But yeah, I was wondering since they're under the same studio, it probably would be the same thing. Yeah, I think yeah. Dolores Claiborne is a lot like Avengers. I think. You're... <laughs> There. <laughs> well, I think if I think um, if they do, then uh, uh, we've got a twin brother or a twin someone uh, working in Little Tall Island as a bank employee, and then Shawshank Prison as uh, the mm. warden. So I think Bob Gutton maybe shatters that a little bit, unless it's his doppelganger. Well, so. you mentioned Nightcrawler. Nightcrawler can change his appearance, <laughs> or no? He teleports. I'm thinking of. Uh, yeah, I was like, wait, I'm like, no, he, he teleports. Yeah, oops, That's my bad. Be it. No, uh, who's uh, Is it clone? He can change his appearance in the X Men. Um, uh, more, more I mean, maybe he's Pennywise. Mystique. There's Mystique. a few. Anyway, 
Mystique, who is Nightcrawler's mom. It could be Mystique's Mystique. Nightcrawler's mom. Mystique. Mystique. <laughs> yeah, man, I, I, that's what I was thinking in my head. I got it. Love it. Um, uh, any other Kings Dominion um, that you I, all noticed? Can I share... I think there's one thing that's notable, um, and I wonder, and it's more about Gerald's game, Mike Flanagan's adaptation, but the red sky yeah. is so notable to me because that's in both of those adaptations. And I mean, obviously, this was, what, 20 years before that, So, but I did think that was interesting. And I think it's interesting that there is no connection to Gerald's game in this adaptation. Yeah. yeah. Well, can I say this? Go with me here yeah. for this little, <laughs> journey, little frolic of my own. Um, so in Gerald's game... Mm-hmm. Gerald says all things serve the beam at one point. Mm-hmm. He witnesses the eclipse in that story. The same eclipse is witnessed in this story. Therefore, what Gerald said in Gerald's game connects the Dark Tower to this film. <gasps> I'm sticking with that. Stick with it. I mean, <laughs> do we ever see Roland and Dolores in the same place at the same time? That's a good point. Gerald's game and Dolores are already connected, even though we don't see the connection in this movie yet, they are connected in that. Yeah, hey, wait, may, um, I'll go for it. <laughs> yeah, we say, why yeah. not? <laughs> why not? Sign us up. Loose change theory. Yeah. Um, all right, let's give our final thoughts on this one and give it some nose ratings. Uh, uh, why don't, Jen, why don't you kick us off? Okay. Um, I... I, there are a lot of things that I really loved about this adaptation. I don't think it, any adaptation would ever um, totally fulfill what I wanted because I just love the book so much. Um, I think they really went for a lot of things, and I think maybe with <laughs> a female director or a female screenwriter or, like, female, like, just people giving their opinion about this. I think it might have solved a couple of the problems that I have. I think whenever you do a story like this, it's really important to like talk about it with survivors of the kinds of things you're talking about and see if things are authentic because when there was a reaction that it didn't feel right to me, it took me out. Mm -hmm. Um, But I do, I love, there's a lot that I really love about it. And I think kind of like what we were talking about at the very beginning, it went for it. This was not like nobody is sexualized in this movie. They it doesn't feel like it's a Hollywood adaptation of this, you know, and I appreciate that given what the subject is. That said, there's this just it doesn't quite work. So I think I'm going to give it um, three and a half. Mm. Right. White wed. Uh, Pennywise <laughs> clown. White, white wed. Pennywise white wed. Love it. How about you, Dan Caffrey? Um, I will go ahead and. I'm going to give it four. White web Pennywise clown noses out of <laughs> out of five. It's fine. We I keep watching the office clip where like Michael's telling Andy not to talk baby talk and then and, 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 oh. and talk, but, um, I'm sorry. Yeah, oh, it's so fun. Yeah, where you went, and then like and then he then Michael is the Elvis voice and Andy's like, "Thank you, Mister Elvis." Anyway, just <laughs> oh. there. Um, yeah, I, I really do do enjoy this movie. I think it's one of the better King adaptations. Love the performances. I I love the direction. Love the score. All that stuff. For me, it's just I and I know they had to change the structure just to make it work narratively. I think they piled on maybe a little bit too much and went a little bit too far to, to, to make this a, uh, a multi-layered kind of beast. Um, and I, I, I know this is prescriptive, but I would have rather have seen them scale back on some of that, scale back on the New York stuff, scale back on the Christopher Plummer stuff, and maybe do some more of the, um, the pre-abusive marriage storylines. I think that could have made the movie a little bit more complex. But I still love it. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, four out of five for me. Cool. How about you, Dan Flieger? I gotta have more of a Gosian. Uh, no, actually, I'm, I'm just kidding. That was uh, that, that would not work. But I just I do love that man. 
He's great. Um, I love Eric Pugosian. Yeah, he's great. Um, but no, it's the, I think with the kind of all-star cast, a lot of these people are going to go on to make a lot of big things. A lot of them already had at this point. Um, and it kind of reminds me of Stephen King dramas tend to do better at the box office. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, with Shawshank, The Stand, and I think even Critic, or not The Stand, I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> Stand by Stand Me. By me. <laughs> Jeez, I am just over this. But, um, but it seems like critics tend to kind of go toward these more prestige King films. My personal favorites are the horror movies. But this did leave a pretty big impact on me. Having not seen it in a long time, um, I was surprised by some of the subject matter that it went into. And even if it did it kind of through this sloppy 90s lens, they were still attempting to do it. Mm-hmm. And I think they don't steer away from that heaviness of this film. You know, you, you finish this movie and you're just like, ugh. You just like exhale because it, it really impacts you. Yeah. So I would give this four white wed, plenty wise, <laughs> clown noses. Nice. I'm sorry I started that. Wait, Out wait, of five. Wait, Wandel. I think I'll give it, Wandel. I think I'll give it Wandel, three and think? a half bright wed, plenty wise, clown noses. <laughs> and um, I think for me, it's it's like, I think it really does work. And I do find it like a really interesting um, adaptation on Tony Gilroy's part. Uh, this is clearly a very tricky book to adapt. And he made a lot of really bold choices in doing so. Um, there are certain things that make me feel a little bit icky about it. Um, I think that by folding in uh, uh, Selena's sort of view uh, or like realization of her own abuse, it's powerful, but also at the same time, I struggle with the way it's sort of used in um, as sort of more of a plot point than an actual real character development moment. Um, And just based on how it wraps up. And so, yeah, I think that in that, in that sense, I struggle and also just with the um, uh, pace of it, I honestly think that it, I, like, I don't know. I think that it moves uh, a little, maybe a little bit too slow of pace for me. Um, you know me, I like my fast cars and I like my dinosaurs. But uh, <laughs> no. but it's like, I, I will say that I found it to be um, at times maybe a little bit languidly paced. And then also there are just certain scenes that I feel like could have given it a jolt like the scene. Again, I understand why they cut it, but I really do miss the scene of him climbing out of the well, things like that. Um, and I do wish that we could have spent more time with David Stray there. And, and I do think Christopher Plummer's role, um, you know, as great of an actor as he is, it, his scenes don't really add a lot of spark to the movie. So, um, so yeah, overall, though, I do think it's really good. And I do think it's an interesting entry in sort of the Stephen King film canon. It's sort of um, uh, like the idea of somebody like Taylor Hackford, who, you know, this isn't the kind of like King is not the kind of person he, he directs a genre. But King is not someone that, you know, a director in, like him usually works with. And I do think it's interesting to see sort of this stately adaptation of a King book. There's a lot of beauty in the um, visual aesthetic I think that is not offered to a lot of Stephen King movies like even like Stand By Me like this movie I think achieves sort of a visual significance and and beauty that is very rare in King and I give it a lot of credit for that so so yeah 3.5 so I think overall we're at uh, 3.75 for this which is hey pretty good pretty good hey we we, uh, we round up to four (laughs) (laughs) so me and Dan win yay (laughs) yeah we we win champions of the universe (laughs) Uh, stay tuned uh, in the coming weeks, we are cracking open Nightmares and Dreamscapes uh, for our Ooh. next uh, big book episode. We're going to be doing several episodes on that, as well as the TV series and the film adaptations. So lots of content.
content coming that way. Um, and then we're also going to have a Bag of Bones episode coming up. So prepare the questions you want to ask us. And we're also going to be doing uh, a Lobstrosities episode. But this is a special edition. It won't be on a King property. It will be on a Casper Van Dien movie. Uh, <laughs> he's never been in any King property. But we fell on this, I think, last year sometime and thought it was funny. So we're following through with it. So if you have a Casper Van Dien movie you'd like us to talk about for Lobstrosities, let us know. But we're also going to put up a poll on our Patreon page. Speaking of, if you want to subscribe to our Patreon and get access to uh, two full episodes a month that aren't uh, available to unpaid subscribers, um, as well as two minisodes and a newsletter, um, all of that stuff is available via our Patreon. You can find it at patreon.com slash thebarons. T-H-E-B-A-R-R-E-N-S. We appreciate anyone who has subscribed to the Patreon. And um, yeah, I think that's everything. Follow us on our socials, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. We got fresh content. Uh, Jen, Dan, Dan, uh, this was amazing. Good times as always. Yeah, this was fun. fun to have y'all on. And uh, yeah, we'll check y'all later. Let's sign off with a long day's. Days. And, and pleasant, 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 pleasant nights. Nice. We're not going to get this right. In, 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 <laughs> coronavirus, yeah. coronavirus needs to end. We need a vaccine so we can get our freedom. <laughs>